They shall be my hammer, the sword in my hand, the gauntlet about my fist, the bane of my foes and woes of the treacherous. When no others may stand beside them, they shall fight. Only the greatest shall enter their ranks, for unto them do I entrust stewardship over the gates of hell. Good evening and welcome to the Loaded Dice Podcast, the, the podcast that always rolls box cards. I'm Doug. And I'm Andrew. Andrew, how are you going? I'm really good. I'm really, really good. I'm excited. I'm, I'm incredibly excited. I've been excited good. since I started writing show notes about eight hours ago. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually. Why are you here. so excited today? What are we? What are we oh, talking about? Ooh, 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 ooh. So this is one of my favorite topics of of all time. This is sort of this actually became my entire hobby for about four years while I was um, finishing up high school, going into university, uh, when I didn't have too much of a gaming group. Um, so we're talking about the Inquisition, um, and and specifically the uh, the Auto Malaeus. Um, so I'm I'm super pumped as you can probably tell from my very excited voice. Uh, I've even found... Malaeus or Malleus? Ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, can we go with either? Yeah, Do we want I guess. determination right now? Somebody's going to complain regardless? Nah, it's often Malleus, but okay, Malleus is go. fine too. Let's go um, Malleus. Let's do Malleus if that's the way you want to go with it. Well, the Latin student in me suggests that it would go that way, but it's also not Latin, it's high gothic, so it can be whatever. <laughs> M could right. be silent for all you care. Automalis right. is the way we're going to do it. Uh, we'll, we'll just expunge and exterminatus the, uh, the last 20 seconds of conversation. That's right. All records purged by order of the Inquisition. That's it. I think we actually have to record this episode and then burn it. Seems fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> I actually even. It's found... going to be that one radical that lets it out into the world, anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> somebody's somebody's going to find yeah. our um our privately listed video on YouTube and share it with the world. <laughs> um, I was going to say I actually even found a uh, a black hood to wear tonight while I'm uh, recording here, so I'm in a very sort of inquisitorial vibe. Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just wearing whatever. I'm wearing street clothes. I'm blending in. Are you wearing pants? I am. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I record down in the garage, so I have to travel from the house to the the bunker. So pants are important. So you have a dress code for the bunker, do you? You have to wear pants. Uh, it's more just I don't want to walk because our house at the back is much higher than our fence line is. And there's quite a few two, two-story houses sort of on the other side of the street behind that or in front of the house behind us. So, See, I feel yeah. like you should, should, should like subscribe to like my way of thinking, which is just if I'm on my property and I'm not wearing pants and you're looking at me, then that's really your problem, not my problem. I mean, yeah, that's true. And has certainly been my approach in the past. But at the same time, it gets <laughs> cold slash hot down here. So... <laughs> Plus bugs, yeah. mosquitoes. Yeah. Oh no, it's been crazy. We we had like um, I think it was like thirty six, thirty seven degrees down here today, and it's just like every bug in the world has like hatched. Mm-hmm. And it's just like awesome. Exactly. So it's like all the doors, all the windows just shut, and it's like what? Still basically the beginning of spring. Yep. Yeah. It's going to be another thirty plus day tomorrow, apparently as well. So that'll be fun. Yeah. No, I did hear yeah. that. Although. It, 
Uh, is dirty too hot to spray paint stuff? Mm. If you get it all done in the morning, you're probably all right, or in the evening or afternoon or whatever. Just not in the not in the midday heat. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Was, was like spray up a bunch of stuff in the morning or whatever, and we just let it all dry. And yeah, yeah, it should be good. Sounds good to me. All right, shall we? Shall we move beyond the rift? We should. You, you have Indeed. some sort of interesting thing written here in these uh, in these show notes, and I want to hear all about it because it sounds ridiculous. I do. So, so beyond the rift, everything that's not tabletop related, things that have caught our eye, various nerd things that we're into, uh, and my beyond the rift or my my signals from beyond the rift uh, this week is Untitled Goose Game. And if you don't, if you're not playing it, you should be playing it. It is excellent. A few games have dropped in recent history, so Borderlands 3 came out and a few other bits and pieces, but Untitled Goose Game is definitely the, the, the winner, the indie darling of video games at the moment. So, so uh, me... is this anything like that Goat Simulator game that came out a few years ago that had everybody really like hyped up? It gets a lot of comparisons to Goat Simulator, but that's unfair because Goat Simulator got a lot of hype and was shit. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I mean, is that, like, it was, it, it was like, a, a bad joke, but people didn't realise it was a joke, if that made sense. Yeah, and then, like, Goat Simulator really leaned into that and, like, just made their, made their game real, like, just left their game really buggy and gave it no real sort of... Oh, yeah, they know, took a piss. Or ...things to do. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Um, Untitled Goose Game is a legitimate game. Um, <laughs> where you play the titular Untitled Goose. So, so if it's if it's a legitimate game, it has a it, it has a mummy and a daddy game that were married. I, I what, what yeah. what's the definition of a legitimate game here? Well, like... a game where the, the designers are, li- are like actually trying to make a game rather than just sort of publishing a piece of crap and going lol jokes irony. Right, um, so it's so it's kind of the opposite of everything Games Workshop does with like their fucking electronic titles. Cool, okay, good. Yeah, it's certainly it's no regicide, <laughs> um, or that stupid Space Wolf card game. Yeah, and they went through that like like they did like just dungeon crawlers that were all literally the same dungeon crawlers with different skins. Yes. The first one, Warhammer Quest, was all right. Yeah, no, Warhammer Quest was fantastic. And then I tried, like, three other ones, and it was just Warhammer Quest, but with <laughs> space marines instead of trolls. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, but anyway, so so to get back to the game, it's made by House House, which is a Victorian uh, game developer. Um, and the, the synopsis for the game, so the, the thing that's on the back of the box, is it's a lovely morning in the village, and you are a horrible goose. Right. <laughs> okay, yep. I'm intrigued. Um, so, you, so you start off as a goose, like, out on the outskirts of town, um, running around, all that sort of thing. Uh, and basically the day unfolds as you go into town and harass basically everybody in the town. So is this uh, like, and it is glorious. Is this like Grand Theft Poultry, or...? Uh, it's been described as a stealth puzzle game. A stealth... <laughs> okay, right. Because you're still a goose. You have no special abilities. Um, except to honk and flap your wings and duck. 
<laughs> like as in crouch down, not become a duck. Uh, although there is a section where you do have to imitate a duck, which is interesting. Anyway, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> um, but it basically starts off with you have to annoy the groundskeeper of like the little sort of, um, what's it called? Like the community farm. Right. Yep. Like the one that everybody goes to to get their carrots and shit. Um, yeah, oh, so you harass the groundskeeper. This is a communist well, town. Yeah. Right. Well, it's more like a, an idyllic little English village. Um, yeah, well, well most you, people in the north of England are communists, so that's all yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, but yes, yeah, so you just sort of the the puzzles get more and more complex, but they're all basically solved by stealing a thing or honking at the right time or running around. It's really good. I quite enjoy it. <laughs> so, how does this rate next to our uh, Borderlands Three that you're also playing? Yeah, so I've put more time into Borderlands Three. You can get through Untitled Goose Game in an afternoon. So is it like a, is this a mobile game? It sounds like it's a mobile game or something. Not really. It's it's still PC. I mean, you could probably play it on mobile, but I think the the precision with which you have to do some things sort of lends itself more to a keyboard and mouse. Well, probably even just a keyboard <laughs> or a controller. Actually, the um, the best reviewers, like the people who have given it the best reviews, I mean, um, have all been playing it on the Nintendo Switch. Oh, okay, right, it's a Switch game. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's quite good for the Switch. Um, but, you know, I played it on PC and really enjoyed it. Um, so I'm just looking through here. Some people have done, like, an under four-minute speed run of the whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, if you work really hard, you can knock it over pretty quick. Yeah, um, four minutes, okay. <laughs> yeah. Took me a bit longer than that, but that's okay. Um, and there is an objective to it, so you are completing missions. You've got to-do lists for each sort of area of the village that you move into. Um, and there is a, an ultimate objective at the end of the game, which I won't spoil, because, you know, uh, you have to do some discovery by yourself. Fair uh, but it, it is fun just to screw with various people in various settings. Um, there's a child who is afraid of geese. Oh, I was just about to ask if there are any children you could, like, attack and scar for life, chase up trees. So, part of the to-do list is to get the kid who wears glasses, by the way, to put on the wrong pair of glasses. <laughs> okay. So, and the way you do that is that you untie his shoelaces so that he's got to bend down and, and tie them. And then you steal his glasses. And then he's <laughs> blind without them, so he can't chase you. And then you go, like, drop them in a river, in a lake or whatever, and then go get another pair of glasses and drop them nearby. <laughs> this goose sounds like an arsehole. <laughs> it is very, very much an arsehole of a goose. Um, so one of the other objectives for that kid is to lock him in a phone, books, uh, phone booth, <laughs> which is great, because then the, the, the person who owns the um, TV shop next door has to come and get him. And then you get into the shop and cause havoc. It's great. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh. So I've, I've done I've done my initial run through, and then once you finish that, they give you like extra missions as well. Yep. So I haven't started on them yet because I've been sort of sucked into finishing the Borderlands story. But um, one day I will go back because it is a great game, and if you're not playing it, you should definitely play it. That's game of the year. Untitled so, Goose Game. <laughs> so, um, if people want to try Untitled Goose Game, where can they get it from? 
Uh, I got it on the Epic Store, which is the same place that it's on. Um, no, the, sorry, that Borderlands is on. I don't know if it's on Steam. It might not be, actually. Let me have a quick look. Yeah. And you said for Switch as well. Yeah. So basically, I think every console has it. It is on Steam. So there you go. So you can just buy it on Steam if you need to. Cool. Or if you, you want go. to. Um, I would imagine probably good old games would have it. And um, how... But certainly the consoles will have it. How much is it? Uh, that is an excellent question. It is... Why won't it give me the price? It just says add it to your wish list. <laughs> I have to log in to see the price. What is this crap? Ugh. Hang on. Give me a moment. Vamp. Vamp. So this is what happens in Beyond the Rift. 22 bucks, Australia. 22 bucks. There you go. Is it worth $22? It is worth 60 bucks. Oh, there you go. There you go. You've heard it here, people. Untitled Goose Game, $22 on the Steam store uh, or the Epic store. They're basically giving it away. Switch. Um, and it's a steal at almost three times the price. Yes, pretty much. Perfect. Love it. Uh, yeah. But yes, Untitled Goose Game. Play it. Um, <laughs> for a better review with less arms and less sort of stalling for time while I check facts, um, Thumb Cramps did a review of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, when and then... basically spent the whole episode talking about it. <laughs> so I, th- I think where I am at the moment, I- I'm more likely to, you know, do that or watch somebody like streaming it or something than actually play it myself. But I imagine yeah. I'd have as much fun doing that and less frustrated about it. <laughs> That's fair. It is fun to watch as well. Watching, <laughs> watching how people annoy people, like how you get the kids' glasses and all that sort of stuff. Awesome. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, no, appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Uh, I'm definitely going to go looking for some videos of that uh, while we finish doing this podcast. <laughs> so if I can't start zoning out here for a second, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching an asshole goose. Glorious. You definitely should. Uh, what have you got beyond the rift? <laughs> um, well, I thought that it had been quite a few episodes since we talked about June. Mm. Um, so I thought I wanted to talk about June for a bit. Um, so I did a little bit as of digging to see May, if, or as in the the, the sandy stuff. Oh, yeah, lots of sand. Yeah. Yeah, sand hills. Um, and I went and had a bit of a look, and the only stuff that I could really find, but I'm going to bring it to you anyway, is a few of the cast members uh, for the new Villeneuve uh, movie that's coming out December 18, 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't know if we had a release date for it, so. Uh, December 18, 2020, uh, was saying that uh, Villeneuve was specifically told by, I want to say it was Warner Brothers that's Mm -hmm. producing it um, as a studio, um, that he had full creative control. Um, So apparently, like, this was like a... uh, The the, the original June film that was done by... God, what was the guy's name? Um... Jesus, it's just fallen out of my body head. I was reading it two seconds ago. That's a real good question. I couldn't. Uh, the say 80... I know Patrick Stewart's in it. Lynch, Lynch, uh, David there Lynch. Perfect. So, uh, Lynch complained that the one thing he wasn't allowed to do was actually make his own movie. Um, that what eventually got released was not really in any way, shape, or form 
what he'd tried to put together in his vision for June. And he felt that it had, um, yeah, that basically the studio, which was Universal Pictures, basically fucked the whole thing up in an attempt to make it uh, not more palatable, but just more commercial. Like, mm. um, even though how it, like, you know, it, it's incredibly fucking weird. Apparently it would have made a lot more sense if Lynch's full film had have made it. Um, so yeah, um, it was a big thing that a lot of people have been really worried about, um, with this new one that, you know, like how much are they going to try and soften June for like a wider audience kind of yeah. thing? Um, because if you, if you haven't read June, um, it is from the old school of sci-fi. Yes. Uh, very much so. It's, it's very strange. Uh, it's it's not science fiction like we know it today. Like, it it was actually a completely different genre back then. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, and it's actually far more, and a lot of people don't sort of understand this, but Dune is actually predictive science fiction, which is something that, like, um, Asimov yeah. was kind of one of the forebears for, and um, Herbert did the same, especially with the first Dune is it's supposed to be like looking into a crystal ball to some extent and seeing what things could possibly be like in the future. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a few other things. And, and so it's it's very different to, I guess, today's sci-fi where it's just supposed to be like, you know, big gallivanting space opera um, out there, which, which is fantastic, but it, it is different and it plays off differently. I don't really know how to explain yeah. it too well but it is supposed to be odd in a lot of ways and obviously a lot of the things they deal with are are not particularly solid concepts um yeah so yeah apparently um a few of the cast so specifically Stellan Skarsgård who's going to be playing uh Baron Harkonnen as well as um Yavia um Bardem who's playing Stilgar the Fremen uh, which I think is going to be amazing Interesting. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, yeah, so they've they've been doing a bit of publicity for it, and one of the big things I've been saying is that yeah, he was specifically told by the the studio, do what you want. We're gonna back you. We're gonna put the money here. Just do what you want. Make this what it's supposed to be. And the other thing that was really interesting, and I didn't actually know this, although I think it's probably been around for a while, is this movie only covers the first half of the first book. This is, so it specifically deals with the handover of Arrakis between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. That is all it deals with. Interesting. Um, And they're talking at least six films um, is where the studio is talking about going with it. Hmm. Um, Which is interesting. (laughs) June Cinematic Universe. (laughs) Apparently. Um, I do know that, that years and years and years ago, um, when his son and Kevin J. Anderson started writing prequels and started expanding the Dune universe outside of the original, what, three or four books that he wrote, uh, they, they sold the, the rights to them very quickly. And I'm yeah. wondering whether, whether like, I would imagine Warner Brothers would hold all the rights. They wouldn't put money into a film where they don't own all of it. Uh, and, yeah, maybe they're expecting to Star Wars it or something. 
Yeah. Which would be you interesting, know. right? Because Star Wars is very much the like the the poster child for those sort of big romping space operas rather than predictive science fiction. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's kind of the thing is is like June, especially the more modern books, go down a traditional sci-fi kind of route, uh, yeah. and and a bit of the weirdness gets dialed out of it. A lot of the concepts are far more. Uh, like they're understandable concepts. Like there's a lot less of like, you know, the, the 1960s and seventies, like psychedelic science fiction in it as well. Yeah. And, and like there was a lot of, um, a lot of East meets West in it. Uh, there was a fascination mm-hmm. when he was writing the original books with this, you know, w- whether it was things like, kung fu or tai chi and you know eastern philosophy and ways of life and a lot of that kind of comes into june in different ways and it sort of comes as a a counterpoint to the very western religious philosophy that's in june um it's like the bene gesserit sisterhood and all that sort of thing is supposed to be this you know um an analog for you know catholicism to some extent Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it bounces off, you know, the Fremen and their ideas of religion and how that all kind of works, as well yep. as, you know, you, you have all these things like, you know, how he gets taught how to fight in certain, you know, certain instances and, and those sort of things, which is kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, like, like, I'm pretty happy. Like, I'm a massive Dune fan. I uh, love it to death. So I think it would be... Like, obviously, I'm hanging out for this movie like crazy. Uh, December 18th next year, can't get here fast enough. Um, and obviously, <laughs> the the cast looks amazing for it. Every time I go back and refresh myself on who's in the movie, I sort of realize there's somebody I missed the first time around. And I'm like, oh, yep. that's going to be awesome. That's going to be so, yeah. So, yeah. And I'm yeah. very happy that if he's got a lot of creative control, it's not going to be um, not so much dumbed down like at the end of the day it's got to be a movie and i understand what you lose moving a book to a movie regardless but yeah yep. yeah should be very very cool it's i feel like it's hard to be a 40k fan and not also like dune right oh uh, you know what like you'd think that but there's a ton of people that i talk to in the community that have never ever read it never seen the um the 80s version of it never seen the mini mini series they did in the early 2000s like just like they know there's giant worm things and all the sand uh-huh. yes and it's yeah, kind of but i guess once you've been exposed to it right like it's it's it it intersects so well with 40k that once you've started getting into it it's hard to it's hard to look at it and go i love 40k but i don't like this yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Well, the, well that's that's it right you know games workshop where the you know the great I don't want to say thieves because I think that devalues it. And I think that's not the right way to deal with things in a genre like science fiction and fantasy. Correct. But, you know, to, to borrow so much from so many different places and then string it together into, you know, what is getting on for probably being one of the most coherent and wide spanning sets of law of any franchise on the planet. Mm-hmm that doesn't hold a major motion picture as part yeah. of its like when you when you think about it you know there's um yeah like the the universe 
far outstrips just about anything I can possibly think of. Like, um, I'm just trying to think of what I could possibly compare it to. Um, Lord of the Rings, maybe? In terms yeah. Of, like, expansive lore. Yeah, to, like, to some extent. But once again, Lord of the Rings has, you know, several, what, six motion pictures? That's true. Seven, if you include the 1980s cartoon. Uh, um, yeah, like it's 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 incredible. And okay, right, we've got um, Ultramarines or whatever that movie was that was kind of the CGI thing, but I wouldn't call that a major motion picture. But yeah, it's 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 just absolutely awesome, and it's you know it spans three three and a bit bit decades. Um, actually, one of the things when I was preparing for our show tonight, um, I went back through some of my old books um, that I didn't throw out. God. And I actually pulled out the second edition Codex Imperialis and had a bit of a flick through it because obviously it's one of the the first places where they started codifying things like the Inquisition and the Grey Knights and mm. all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, like, you know, there's, there's so much stuff in here and it's like, you know, flick to a page and you have either a picture and a lot of these pictures are, you know, Blanche and those early sort of artists or, you know, a little breakout box with quotes or stories and stuff yep. like that. And so much of it is, you know, like inspired from other sources, yep. but they've taken it and made it their own. And then you end up with this book back in, when was this book printed? Let's have a look. Um, 93, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. 1993. And it's this, like, there's so much lore in here, and it all kind of works in together, which is fantastic. Um, and, like, a lot of the stuff, obviously, by now has been retconned and changed and and evolved upon, but it's still pretty amazing to sort of think about it and go, yeah. So, no, I think you're right. I, I think it's hard to, you know, obviously play 40K and like 40K and not like things like June. Yeah. Yep, 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 because it's got... Yeah, I mean, June is one of those early runners of like things that have it all, right? It's got the politics, it's got the the structure around it that lets you tell. Like, if you wanted to, you could almost tell other stories inside the June universe quite comfortably. I don't oh. think they have with video games and those sorts of things. Yeah, um, but also still has the big sort of set battles that let you really sort of dig into that. And yeah, it's just it's got everything. It's a good series. I recommend it. Yep, hundred percent. I, I think it's. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. Well, that's probably beyond the rift. Nice. So Very we will cool. so roll signals from the front. Yeah, roll right in the signals to the front. Doug, what have you been up to? What releases are you liking? What do you want to talk about? Uh, I want to talk about so many things, but for now, we'll we'll keep it tight. I've been playing Aeronautica Imperialis, which has been a lot of fun. Um. Actually, did we did we record before or after the Warcry tournament? Before, right? Yes, possibly. Cool. Well, I also played in a Warcry tournament and won, um, which is great. Excellent. Do you want to give us some more details um, on the white on the Warcry tournament? Uh, maybe. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we went up to, to Archon Games, which was up in the northwest of Sydney. Um, ben and I carpooled up for a, a Warcry tournament, which consisted of Ben and I 
in the end. So there was just the two of us playing. Um, so we ended up playing a best of three sort of thing, um, which the Unmade took, which was really Loving cool. It. Yeah, so that's given me an inflated sense of my ability to play Warcry. Uh, and so now I'm taking my Warcry to Moab. So the Unmade will, will crack on there as well and hopefully go undefeated again. Well, not undefeated, but take out top spot again. So uh, I think I'm going to declare you currently the uh, top of the pile for Warcry in uh, Sydney and the greater Sydney region. That uh, seems fair. So King Doug, King Doug repping the uh, Loaded Dice podcast. That's what we like to hear. I'll take it. Although it's a lot of pressure for Moab now. But that's all right. It's only nine people or something. Eight other people. Oh, yeah. And, and eight other people. Yeah. And, and look, it's on Saturday, right? And we're recording. It's Thursday night. So you've got a day, like, like 24 hours, 30 hours to come up with some sort of crippling addiction to get over the pressure. It's fine. Yes, it's true. So that'll be fine. I'll just, yeah, do a line <laughs> of something. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That'll propel me into victory. Um, but no, so a lot of fun. It was actually, it was a lot of fun to play Warcry in a match play setting because we've been playing, Ben and you and I, a lot of the campaign style Warcry yep. where there's the, the asymmetrical missions and different objectives that you're trying to achieve and that sort of thing. Um, but when you're playing symmetrical missions on ideally symmetrical boards, um, you know, with symmetrical deployments and those sorts of things, it's it's an interesting game then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to play some, and mm. I'll try and get something this weekend. Uh, Ben's back in the uh, back in the neighbourhood, so I, I'll imagine I'll catch up with him and maybe game. Nice. So that would be kind of cool to give that a go. Like, I, I definitely like the idea of just drawing the stuff out of the deck. I think it adds to the frantic nature of it. Yeah, to some extent. Although there's definitely some stuff we've looked at already with it, where if you fuck you know, fuck up splitting your warband up or something, you've lost the game before you've even done anything else, or if you get, like, a bad deployment with a bad um, bad objective. Yep. You know, in some cases, you can't even place models, and then it's like, you know, yeah, causes a bit of an yep. issue. And, yeah, I, like, I, I think there's definitely um, scope for an FAQ. But Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they put out FAQ-wise, just to keep things sort of rolling. Um, but yeah, so far so good. And we also saw our first of the Spire Tyrants the other day as well. Oh, we did, yeah. The guy with the, the big double-handed axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, looks looks a lot like a Chaos Marauder um, with a little tiny little bit of Varengard sprinkled in. Yeah, which, like, I, like, I kind of like it. Um, they're mm. described as being, like, gladi like gladiatorial warbands yeah. that hang out in the gladiator pits, um, which sounds yeah. cool. Interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, and I mean, and of all the warbands in Warcry, they're the ones who are most likely to just about be picked out of the, the gladiatorial pits and just thrown into a Marauder squad anyway. So it kind mm -hmm. of makes sense that they're the most marauder E. E, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of Genesis in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. So I enjoyed that. I, like I said, I really enjoyed playing the slightly more balanced Warcry games. Keen to play some more this weekend. Um... But yeah, Warcry's good. Shout out to Ben for coming second. Hundred uh, percent that tournament. Yeah. <laughs> good luck. Very cool. Um, but yes, and then we played after that uh, a demo game of Aeronautica as well, which was a bit of fun just to get the hang of the rules and that sort of thing. Um, and then Adrian came around, I think, last weekend, and I played a few more games with him, which was really cool. So fantastic. Most 
yeah i'm i'm quite enjoying it it's it's a lot of fun um yeah it's a different kind of game certainly so particularly because you're used to doing all of your measuring with a, a tape measure and that sort of stuff and having better than five plus to hit um things tend to hang around more than you would expect and it's a different sort of measurements system which is interesting okay and having that sort of restricted movement as well and having to sort of choose your maneuvers before you start yeah i was sort of i, I can't remember if i said anything on the last uh last episode about it but i watched uh, a couple of games that gorilla miniatures uh, ash barker mm. was doing uh in that week before it released and there were a couple of games where like it, it it seemed quite restrictive like i was actually a little bit like mm, actually after watching this game i'm not entirely sure i'm that interested in it as a system uh but i i have a feeling that it was people just uh, knowing that you can pin somebody in a corner and just going and doing it um like there was yeah. one game where like uh I, I think it was a marauder and a thunderbolt basically just got ringed into a corner by the orcs and there was just nothing they could do about it and so everything took place you know in maybe eight hexes six hexes or something like that and yeah. i was just like yeah cool nothing's really happening here um <laughs> yep 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 yeah i mean that's not been my experience playing it i mean it's it's certainly interesting if you've got your imperials because the imperials like to be in that sort of middle range bend so they like to they like to have a bit of space between them and their enemy planes whereas orcs being orcs like to be up close and personal so you've got that sort of push and pull happening the whole time um yeah a canny imperial player should be able to break out of a corner like that though reasonably comfortably because there's no like path blocking you can always just move past a thing yeah, I, I think the issue was that they the Imperial player split his force mm. um, or had to split his force because of the mission. I, I, I can't really remember. But there's some reason that basically ended up with a couple of Thunderbolts on one side and this oh, a couple of Thunderbolts and a Marauder and then a Marauder and a Thunderbolt on the other side, I think it was. And yep. all the Orcs mobbed the two planes on their own and he kept and he couldn't really get away from them because all the orcs were going to end up on his tail just getting tail shots yeah, yeah, yeah or something so he was he was trying to fly the other planes over to help out and by the time that happened it was just all over anyway um mm. yeah but no no it, it seems like you guys were having a fair bit of fun with it so and obviously the models are gorgeous like i just want a whole bunch of thunderbolts yes. So. Yeah, see, I'm going, I'm going full bomber command. So I've got, I've picked up my box of Marauder destroyers. Um, so I've now got four Marauder planes floating around. Awesome. So have you have you got some background for your um your force yet? Do you know who they are and where they come from? Um, kind of. So I've got them. I'm calling them the Imperial Roulettes for now, mostly just because the art, the, <laughs> the paint scheme is inspired by the RAAF Roulettes. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I kind of like the idea that the Thunderbolts and the Marauders are two separate wings. Well, that's so really the, standard the, for the Navy, isn't it? Exactly. So the Thunderbolts have all the blue sort of triangles sitting on their wings and that sort of stuff as, as a mark, demarcation for their wing. And then the Marauders are just the blue and red. Yep. Cool. Um, like uh, bottom top. Um, so I like the idea that they're two separate wings from the same planet 
who aren't the best at what they do. Right. So, okay. So often in these sorts of things, the wing that you're playing is the very best at whatever it is that they're meant to be doing. Um, kind of like the the Fantine Skyborn or the Apostles or any of those guys, right? They're the, the yeah. aces and that sort of stuff. These dudes are just solid workhorses. Okay. Um, <laughs> the the mainstay is the bombers, so they're they're often deployed when you need a thing bombed flat, but yep. you don't need your best pilots to go and do it. So basically, they're like the no frills squadron. Basically, that's kind of my idea. I love the idea that the particularly the bombers are crewed by, you know, the people who are competent airmen. They can do their job. They're really good at it. They're often deployed when you need something reliably flattened, but they don't do it with a lot of style. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of float over, drop a million bombs on something, and go home and call it a day. Nice. Uh, and the Thunderbolts, by virtue of having to constantly protect them, are not the best dogfighters. They're just good bomber guards. Yeah. Okay. No, I like that. Uh, yeah. The- you're right it is kind of this idea that you know every time we do something it's like you know these are the best at doing this or these are you know this guy's his hero or something and it's just like no no these are just the guys like they got their wings and they've been given a bomber and you know they'll go out and do stuff but don't expect miracles (laughs) no and if they get caught by like a a hell ton (coughs) sort of flight or something they're probably all dead but you know there's more where they came from and Marauders are reasonably cheap to make. <laughs> Excellent. But, um, yeah, so that's them. And then eventually when Chaos comes out, hopefully Chaos comes out, I'm going to do the, the Chaos fleet from Double Eagle. Yeah, nice. With so the, like the, 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 the red talent with the pearl white stuff. Yep. yep. <clears throat> yeah, well, well I, I'm going to take a, take a stab here and predict that I think we're going to see Chaos. Eldar, yep, and probably Tau as the other three races. Yeah, that's what Scuttlebutt seems to suggest. Yeah, so um, feel free to uh, hold me to that. Hmm. Um, but I think that's kind of the way it's going. Um, no, I'd love to get some, love to get a game in at some point, and then inevitably end up buying like a million Thunderbolts or something. Yes, do it. Although, having said that, you don't really need <laughs> many, right? Because I've got. Two, two Marauder Bombers and two Marauder Destroyers is 100 points exactly. Uh, and Thunderbolt Furies aren't many points less than a bomber. So you probably only need four or five. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you could do a 100-point wing without too much trouble and then, you know, have a Marauder Bomber or two, like just buy the starter set and sell the Orcs. Yeah. And then if you want to go up to 150 points, you've got plenty of points to sink into Marauders. And then if you, even if you want to go up to 200, there's enough upgrades that you can throw on a plane that'll get you there. Yeah, nice. Yeah. nice, nice, nice. I think we should do a do an episode in the near future that's um, aeronautica inspired and do some like some Imperial Navy background and stuff. Yes, we should. Because they're awesome. fascinating. Yes, excellent. Um, so I've been going a bit long, but just real quickly, other things that have caught my eye um, or that I've been doing. I've been building my Gracchus pattern vehicles. So if you're following, ooh, actually. If you've seen me on the 40k converters Facebook page, then you know what I'm talking about. But otherwise, I don't think I've even posted them to my Instagram yet. I'll get there. <laughs> um, but I'm building a a set of knights for my this is 300 
army, my Chaos Knights. I bought the codex for that too, and I've started flicking through that, so that's good. Um, but I want them to be useful after this is 300, so I'm making them wheeled vehicles to match my uh, little Gragas pattern patrollers, which are the, the trikes I did ages ago that are my Tauruses, which is cool. So I've done one of my two Helverins uh, into like a little quad with uh, long-barreled las cannons instead of long-barreled auto cannons. Uh, and I've done the um, the big knight as well. So I've turned the, the main knight into a, a little dune buggy type thing um, with a side-mounted gun. Yeah, I, I think I saw that before. Is that the one with the little dome-headed pilot? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I put the 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 um, a Talon Wolf Quad, thank you, uh, driver. I put that body on the the Hector Rex sort of night pilot uh, assembly. So instead of being a night pilot, it's just some dude in a mining suit driving a mining vehicle that happens to have a big gun attached. Yeah, and he's totally chaos, right? Not a gene stealer. Mm. So the thing is, Codex <clears throat> Chaos Knights also covers Renegade Knights. <clears throat> and I feel like people who worship the Four-Armed Emperor are considered Renegades. By the oh, way, yeah. Like you, you're, like, like you're basically <laughs> Chaos. You're basically Chaos, you know? Like, yeah, you're all just scum. Yeah. So Yeah. Like, like, like as much as you might be the express purview of the Auto Xenos to eradicate your shit, I'm pretty sure that anybody from... You know, the other two main autos are, are probably not going to leave you alone if they find you. Which is a shame, because that's all we really want. <laughs> Don't be left alone. Stop asking questions. It's fine. There is no infection here. All yeah. Yeah, fucking Jane Stars. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Not yeah, again. It's fine. Just look, just look into my eyes. Look into my eyes. Don't look around the eyes. Look into my eyes. <laughs> Your emperor is false and has too few arms. Yeah, I, 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 I honestly, fe- I honestly feel like Jane Stewart cults are kind of like. Um, do you ever see like the Jehovah's Witness guys at train stations, and they don't, mm-hmm. they don't talk to you, right? But they just intently stare at you, in a bid <laughs> to get you to go and talk to them. And I just sort of think I'm like, I don't know, guys. That's not how I'd be doing it. Like, thank you for not, like, you know, mugging me on the way to the station. But also, like, just, yeah, I don't know. And I feel like Gene Steeler called a right there with that. It's kind of the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all about the, the personal evangelism, right? They'll, they'll become your friend and then ask you if you've heard the good news rather than, you know loudly proclaim stuff from street corners yeah 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 that's it that's it just just come to this guy's house and we'll have some um tea and crumpets and tell you all about the uh the four-armed emperor that's right we'll talk faith it'll be fun um, <laughs> love it yes which is good anyway um so that's all my stuff and then the new things that have been catching my eye is i don't really have a mind to do a cities of sigmar army but on the warhammer community page there's a great article called Converting the Cities of Sigmar that has some really beautiful conversions sitting on it. Yes, we were talking about this just before we uh, jumped on and started recording. So this one came out uh, yesterday on yep. Warhammer Community. Um, and what was your favourite conversion off this page, Doug? 
Uh, well, as I'm scrolling down, the first one's fairly bog standard. So that's the the Chris Peach, so Peachy's Hello Guild army. There's some cool stuff in there, but it's pretty sort of bog standard. Um, and then you move into Ben Johnson's Anvil Guard, which is all steam tanks, but the boss steam tank is kitbashed with one of the little uh, Caradon Overlord gunboats. So it's a floating steam tank piloted by a Caradon Overlord, which I love. Yeah, no, very cool. Um, <laughs> And then there's the other one that's sort of being supported by three little balloon dudes from the Caradron list. Um, but then you get to, to Ricky Smith's army, the City of Midnight, and I think that's probably my favourite one. Mm. Just looking I at it. I would agree. I would very yeah. much agree. So so for this one, Ricky's um, actually taken the Solar Auxilia from the, the Horus Heresy line and made them his, or made them their gunners and halberdiers and stuff and it looks really fucking good yeah and, and then uh his um heroes um, yeah they're all like these incredible sort of you know very dark gritty industrial kit bashes like there's a i don't know what it is but it's half a domitar with half a steam tank with half a <laughs> flame a cannon and then a guy pinned to the front of it kind of like a pen, uh, penitent engine um yeah which is really cool uh and then the piece of the resistance for me is the giant walking castle house steam tank defiler thing it's quality so yeah uh, i don't even know how to explain it but it's fantastic it kind of looks like something out of some crazy like twisted demented anime show or something but it just works it looks amazing so go, go and check that stuff out i actually really love that that wood and like the steam powered domitar for maybe not for 30k but you know it feels weirdly enough it feels very war machine right the the sort of the steam powered magic infused yeah um mech See, if, if War Machine had, like, or if all their models were like this, I would play the shit out of that. Mm, I'd collect the shit out of it. So I'm still not sure. I'd yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I would collect it. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, it would sit in boxes unpainted for years. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, yeah, but no, really, really cool. I actually, it's, it's almost inspired me. I... I do kind of like Ben Johnson's idea of a pure steam tank army and just like recreating my beloved armored battle group in AOS. See, that could be interesting. And I think at the moment, and this is probably a discussion for another, um, another episode, but I, I think that shooting could be something big at the moment in age of Sigmar. Mm. I know a lot of people talk about it, but we haven't seen much, but uh, maybe Cities of Sigmar is is going to bring that to the fore. If you can have, obviously, like, battle line steam tanks is going to yeah. be an interesting one. But maybe it's just going to be, like, the... Um, oh, I want to say it was the 4th or the 5th edition uh, Tyranid Codex, where you could just take, like, an army all of Carnifexes, like the first... Good old Carnifexes. And it just wasn't great. No, I know. Um, and I'm wondering whether that's going to be kind of the same thing where it's like, oh, you can just have all the steam tanks you want. Ah, uh, yeah, but it's shit, you know? <laughs> well, that would be the thing, right? Like, particularly because Age of Sigma has, like, all the weapons have a set to wound roll. It's not like it's harder to wound. Um, 
and it would it would all really sort of boil down to well how many wounds does it have does it have enough wounds that it can take a volley of fire from a handgunner squad and not fall apart yeah that's it and you know like can it like does it have things like you know uh, damage prevention on it or you know yeah what's, what's, what's kind of yeah armor saves and invol saves and all the rest of it um what are they they still call ward saves in sigma uh i don't think so i think they're just um are they are they just invulnerable saves now uh, i can't remember something like that but yes, but, hmm, maybe. It yeah, was, uh, I've sort of been. I literally just bought the Skaven battle tome too. <laughs> I was going to do a Skariah list, but now I'm like, oh, but I could do all steam tanks. Yeah, I, I, I've sort of been looking at this. My um, my eyes really landed on Anvil Guard mm. as a city, which is kind of like the um, it's a port city, and it's where a lot of like the um, Scourge privateers hang out, and their boats come in and dock. Uh, and, and it's kind of the closest I'd be able to get to like a dark elf army. Yep. So I've sort of been, and, and I really like the, uh, the narrative behind Anvil Guard and everything else that goes with it. So I'm sort of keen to get my hands on the book and just sort of see, is it the sort of thing that would be worth putting an army together? Yeah. Uh, or whether it's not, but yeah, we'll wait and see. And then maybe if that's not the case, I might look at the Oric, uh, war clans, book yeah that's fair they're both out over the weekend aren't they uh saturday morning i'm pretty sure yeah cool which would be awesome because i just hopped onto azir to quickly build my all steam tank list to see what it looked like but it's not on there yet which is a shame no no it's all right i'm sure we can make it work oh i've still got my skaven list here i don't know if i want to do it anymore um, but enough mumblings from me. What's what's caught your eye? What what are your signals from the front? Well, I when I started, as I said, when I started writing these show notes eight hours ago, I was firmly locked in on my list for this is three hundred. Uh, since then, and as a direct result of having to sit here and write show notes on the <laughs> um, on the Grey Knights <laughs> and the Order Malleus, um, I, I think I'm back at Grey Knights. To be honest. Um, no. So about a week ago, I realized that through um, subtly bending a whole lot of the rules uh, that are part of this is 300, I, I could kind of get away with building a battalion-sized uh, Primaris Space Marine force. Nice. Uh, which, which was kind of cool. Uh, and I'll sort of run it, run it down for you because I'm not going to use it, I don't think. But what I worked out is that the rules... The rule surrounding this is 300, right, is you get 300 Australian dollars. You have to buy retail, but not specifically Games Workshop. Mm. You just can't buy second hand and you can't buy, obviously, like recasts and you can't buy, um, like, from bit sellers. So you can't buy, yeah. like, an individual sprue of something. So it's got to be in box. You have to provide receipts, but it can be cheaper than Games Workshop retail if you've got access to it. Uh, the other thing that came into play was that shipping does not account and neither does import tax. Um, cue me spending like four hours on eBay the other day. Uh, <laughs> so the other thing that, that came into it is obviously you can buy like big box sets and stuff like that inside of that 300. Mm. And what Marty said was you can, like if you buy a box set and you're using, obviously, you know, if it's 
like Dark Imperium or something, and you're obviously using like just a Nurgle or just a Space Brain half, you just cut the box set, the price of the box set in half. Yep. So I was going to run Raptors using the new Raven Guard Codex. Yep. And it was going to involve a whole bunch of Sniper Scouts. A shadow, a shadow Spear box set for the Eliminators, Infiltrators, and Suppressors. Nice. Then another box of Eliminators, and then most probably it was going to be an Invicta Tactical Warsuit, and yep. then the two um, the two characters out of the box, except I think I was going to turn the Lieutenant into a Captain or the Captain into a Lieutenant and then use the Librarian. I can't remember which way it was. And basically what I ended up with was about 780 points... So that sits right between the 600 and 800 point mark we had to make. And if I purchased it from a variety of eBay retailers in, I think it was all America and Canada, then I could make it work for about $5 under the $300 mark. Nice. But the actual total spend, including (laughs) the shipping, the fact I had to buy a Shadow Spear box, and the import tax and the sales tax, because obviously in America that's not included in it, and I don't think it, in Canada it is either. Mm. Um, it was going to be closer to like six hundred dollars worth of stuff. Wow. Uh, but it was going to, but obviously, you know, I get the other side of Shadow Spear, which was going to go into the Iron Warriors army. So I, you know, wasn't that annoyed about that. But it was just going to be like a butt ton in like shipping and stuff. Like I think there was, you know, a hundred and eighty bucks in shipping. Um, at the very least, before sales taxes and the rest of it. It was because it was coming from all over the place, so there was no, like, combined shipping. It was like, yeah. right, this guy's got a Shadow Sphere box left. This guy's got the Invicta Tactical Warsuit for, like, $8.35 cheaper than this other guy's got it. Um, so it was, it was a little bit ridiculous, but it was it looked like it was going to be a really cool army, and it was going to bounce off, obviously, all the Mortal Wound mm. um, generation that Raven Guard can play with with sniper rifles. So, like, Sniper's doing, like, wounds to characters on five pluses instead of six pluses. Yep. Uh, you know, hiding people behind, you know, line of sight blockers and using mortis rounds off the Eliminators, that sort of thing. And yeah. I sort of had it all figured out. I was kind of pumped for it, and I even liked the idea of doing Raptors. But part of me is, like, I, like I have another Space Reinforce that's just waiting to see if Crimson Fists are worth playing. Yeah. Because I'd really love to redo my Crimson Fist army, um, but I don't want to. I, I can't do that for this is three hundred because one of the rules is obviously you can't have the army already. So I had to do something else, and that's kind of like so I'm going to be left with this Raptors army. That if it gets built up past the eight hundred point mark, like after this is three hundred, it would just end up being another Space Brain army that wouldn't be that much different from what I'd probably do with Crimson Fists. Yeah. So it'd be mainly Primaris with scout backing. Um, yeah, so I was kind of like, oh, you know, that's a bit annoying. And obviously, you know, looking at pumping, you know, 500 bucks into it to do it as well. So after writing the show notes and, and rereading a whole bunch of stuff about the Grey Knights, I was kind of like, you know what? I think it's not going to be anywhere near the most competitive I'll probably end up at the very bottom of everything, but I'm like, I think I'm okay with that because if it went further than what I do for this is 300, I'd be completely happy with having a bunch of Grey Knights again. Seems fair. So back over to Grey Knights? Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's where I'm really leaning at the moment. Uh, But as to what list, no idea back to the drawing board, so... 
Seems fair. <laughs> yep. Uh, the other thing is Cyclone and Razorbacks. Is that the? Is that still a competitive build? Ooh, ooh, I always, yeah, Psycat and Razorbacks would be good. Actually, I think it ended up being like Assault Cannon Razorbacks with Cybolts, wasn't it? Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <The better. laughs> and you didn't have to pay like $50 for a turret from Forge World? Yep. Sounds um, about right. So, yeah, no, okay, I think it'll be mainly uh, my original Grey Knight army was almost exclusively Terminators. This was in the days before Paladins. Yep. Uh, so it was all, all Terminators. I think I had one of the teleporty strike squads just because they released before the terminators did so i bought a I bought a box of just power armor armored guys um but yeah i think i might go terminator heavier again that's kind of my uh, my favorite way to do them i think so yeah stay tuned i, I might have made my mind up by the <laughs> by the next episode or flipped again i don't know um okay so uh other signals from the front for me is games workshop announced that they're partnering with marvel yeah some comics graphic novels although i think they actually did call them comics um which is kind of cool so uh very pumped for that i loved when black library used to do graphic novels a lot uh big fan of blood quest malice dark blade uh titan god engine all those yep. sort of ones they were awesome i think even gotrek and felix got some comics at one point that were really cool yeah. So it'd be great to see what happens there. And obviously, I guess the idea is if they're partnering up with Marvel, it's probably looking at being quite a sustained foray into it as a medium, which would be awesome. Yeah. Yes. Because so. they've experimented before with, like, was it Black Horse or Dark Horse? Sorry. Yeah, I think it was Dark Horse. That they did the Death Watch stuff with, which was, yeah, okay. Um,. There was a Deathwing one as well, so they've done some stuff in the in the the area before, but yeah, partnering with Marvel certainly makes it seem like they're gonna sort of really invest in it. Yeah, and obviously, if if people don't know, there's a lot of crossover between Black Library and Marvel already in terms of writers and all sorts of stuff. Like obviously, yeah. you know, Dan Abnett has cool. had a huge hand in a lot of the Marvel stuff with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of crossover with some of the writers and some of the, um, some of the illustrators as well. Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah. I, I think you dropped the, uh, the now famous, um, page out of a Venom comic where yeah. Venom infiltrating a Tau outpost and there's a whole lot of yeah. hammerheads hanging out in the front yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is rather hilarious, but um, which is now canon as soon as Games Workshop signs on with Marvel. Yep, it'll now right. actually be Tau and not whatever the hell <laughs> they were meant to be. So yeah, so that that was that, and then the uh, the last thing was the new Drazar model. Mm. So if anybody doesn't know who Drazar is, he's uh, Darth Maul. If Darth Maul was Dark Elder or Drakari, sorry, as we there call it these days. Uh, so he's um, he he's dropped in alongside Jane Zar for the first part mm. of Psychic Awakening. So what do you think of the model? What are your thoughts for Drazar? Yes, I think I would get rid of the second set of horns, but otherwise I quite like him. Yeah, you know, like I was a little bit disappointed. So I, like I love the original Drazar model, right? Obviously that old Incubi aesthetic. But the thing I loved about him... Original, it's been a while. 
Yeah, he's sort of prancing and he has giant hand claws. Like yeah. two giant tithing yeah. things. Yeah. Like I Great think it would have Yeah, I always love that about him. And I would have I would have been cool for them to somehow fit that into this model. I don't know how they yeah. would have done it, considering the new like the the new aesthetic to the incubi and their blades. But um no, that would have been um I that would have been they've cool. kind of done it with the reversed grip on his on his clavex there. Yeah, I can like I can kind of see it. Like obviously, you know, it, it, he he still got two blades, he's all that sort of stuff. But um, I like that he used to be sort of significantly different, but still within the same aesthetic as the other incubi. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but obviously, that that's that's a pretty massive nitpick from me. Uh, I reckon it's a a pretty fantastic model. Otherwise, yep, I quite like the necklace of shattered soul stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very cool. So apparently they're all um they're specifically Exarch soul stones. Yes, he doesn't like Exarchs. Yeah, and he's um he's attempting to add a, a Phoenix Lord soul stone to that. So Jane Zar's obviously the one that's in the firing line for that. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty crazy. Interesting. So yeah, I, I'm sort of wondering which way that will go. Because obviously, you know, the his background is he's possibly a Phoenix Lord himself. Yes. That's always been. Um, just trying to think. They they noted it here in his fluff. Um, Ara. Yeah, that he was the striking scorpions. Yeah, possibly mm-hmm. the disgraced guy that sort of ran off and left the yeah. striking scorpion temple, and then founded the incubi temple, which mm-hmm. could be really cool to explore. And I get the feeling that they're actually going to explore it with this because they're dropping hints to it and. Um, these days, Games Workshop has a has a habit of if they give you an Easter egg they then kind of flesh it out a lot more than they used to. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Which is kind of cool. So, yeah, looking very forward to seeing this guy on the table. Um, it's a bit of a pity. I, I always, like, like uh, the, the Drakari aesthetic is one of the best aesthetics anywhere in the universe um, for 40K. And I'm sort, of a, I, I'm sort of a bit annoyed that I don't have a Drakari army because I'd love to grab him and put him in an army. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what his stats are like. Like they've got his um his weapon stats here, which look pretty cool. But obviously the big um the big issue with Elder has always been like the crappy strength and the crappy toughness. Yeah. So does That's he have something? Right. If he's strength three, that? then he's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have all yeah. the damage you want on his weapons, but if he's strength three, well, you know, good luck killing that fucking intercessor over there, mate. Like <laughs> yes. <laughs> So yeah. So look, the, how, the other thing I just. Oh, yep. How do you feel about the lack of gun hat? I don't. Yeah, look, it's it's not a problem for me. I, actually, I didn't even notice it. Um, that he didn't that he doesn't have like the the little tube blasters on the side of his thing. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's fine. Like, as far as the new Incubi aesthetic goes, I think it's fantastic. I think it, it hits everything to the right degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's got... I think his collection of Soul Stones is really cool, considering his background and obviously what they're going to try and do with him. Uh, I do like that he's got the two sets of horns, actually. Like, I think that works for him. You know, it's like, you know, Warhammer's now kind of the idea of, you know, you, the bigger your hat, obviously, the more important you are. So he needs a big hat with multiple horns. But no, everything else is, if, if, everything else for me sort of hits, hits the mark. 
So, yeah, gun hat not being there. Yeah. Such as life. I think my big problem is I just don't like horns in general, so I'd probably just cut them all off, to be honest. Give him a bit of a different crest. Yeah. But that's just me. It, 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 it'd be... Actually, <laughs> this with... um, You know what head would look really cool on this is actually Shrike's new head? Give him, the like, a my chemical... Yeah, my chemical romance fringe. That'd be cool. I can see uh, that being a, a dark elder affection there, you know, just cut that fringe. I mean, surely there's there's a million dark <laughs> ale heads in the, the Sigma range, right? Like you can find one that's going to suit you. Yeah, but um, yeah. no, I'd I'd, I'd, I'd I'd give it like an eight 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 and a half out of ten. I think it's very cool. I think it's better than the James R model. Yeah, I haven't I haven't yet kind of fallen in love with with Jane. Um, like I think it's I, I think it's fine. It's a nice reimagining. Yeah. And, and and by reimagining I mean just upgraded to the new way of doing things and a new pose. Yeah. Her hair's still a bit too big. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm a fan of her like balancing on the hair. I also yeah. see it as being like a massive weak point in the model and just constantly getting snapped in transport and oh. on the tabletop. I don't know. Having played Nighthaunt for long enough now, it doesn't like it looks thicker than some of the stuff that the Nighthaunt hang off of, and I haven't had any of them break yet. Okay, uh, probably all right uh, then. It'll be fine as long as you're not, you know, for whatever reason, casting her in resin. <laughs> It'd have and, to be good, sturdy Games Workshop plastic. Yeah, and obviously, or else uh, you're going to have snaps. Yeah, it seems like Drazar and uh, and Jane's are probably go together in like a mini jewel diorama. From the um, the height of the bases and things like that, I get the feeling that you know Drazar's probably parrying, um, parrying Jane's spear, or something mm-hmm. like that. If you put them next to each other, I don't know, maybe. Uh, yeah. Certainly, you can. They're they're posed correctly so that you can take photos of them next to each other. Yeah. Like they're both looking in opposite directions with their their bodies turned out towards the camera, so you know that's all good. Yeah. So how how are you, how are you feeling about Psychic Awakening so far? Ah, oh, it's a bunch of elf bullshit at the moment. <laughs> Wake me up when the when the the Gene Stealer Magi and the Patriarchs are, are getting their Psychic Awakening. Yeah, rolling. Yep. Or when we get Psychic Knights, one or the other. So I was having a bit of a read of, there was a, a short story that they dropped on Warhammer Community today to go with it. Yeah. yeah. And it's worth a read. It's like, you know, two pages or something like that. But it gives a very interesting insight into um, the Eldari. I think specifically, is it uh, Craft Worlds and now the Azerani? Is that right? Yes. Yep. Uh, and it, it, it's it's very interesting. It seems like there's quite a quite a disturbance in the force, sort of um, El, Eldari being dragged off their pathway, and things like that. Um, yeah. So I'm sort of interested to see what they they end up doing. But I think there could be a, a very big shake up on the way for um, for the Eldari. Maybe not so much for Drukari, but. Um, yeah, I think craft worlds are probably going to cease to exist as we've known them for the past, you know, 30 years. 
Interesting. Should be good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. The, the more space elves that get killed, the better it is. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> 100%. Although, uh, they're, hard to, they're hard to infect, so yeah, get rid of them. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, I think that's everything for signals from the front. So what we're going to do is take a short break, and then we're going to come back with our main segment on the auto malleus. See you soon, guys. All right, I hope everybody's back and everybody's got their, their black hoods pulled up over their heads as we delve into one of the most secretive organizations in the 40th millennium or the 41st millennium. Actually, from the 30th millennium all the way through the 41st millennium, to be perfectly honest with everybody. The Auto Malleus. Mm-hmm. So I think what we need to do first, because we are going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive here, um, all the way from the inception of the shadowy organization in the Imperium ranks. Uh, and I think what we really need to start off with for anybody to get them up to speed is who the hell are the Inquisition, Doug? And why who should we care? Uh, they're basically the Imperial secret police, right? Like, they're the guys who are going effectively door-to-door checking under the basement or checking under the floorboards for heretics and traitors. Um, their whole their whole job is to make sure that everybody is still a good, loyal Imperial citizen um, and that all threats, internal and external, are at least kept track of, but ideally destroyed. Including knowledge. Yes, Sometimes. yes, that, 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 that's an incredible threat to the cohesion of Imperial society. Obviously, yeah, you're not allowed to... No, no, you, then, no. And you, then they go to the can't... UN and start yelling at the High Lords of Terror. And <laughs> nobody wants that. That's just creating galactic anxiety. <laughs> oh, and with that, all the sponsors we didn't have left us. Fantastic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so secret police, I think, is good. Religious police as well. In the 41st millennium, that's definitely part of their remit, is that it's all about the imperial creed. Uh, and, and it's definitely the idea that, you know, what you see on the tabletop in the game and what you read about in a lot of Black Library novels, you know, Gaunt Ghosts and, you know, the, yeah. the Uriel Ventress model uh, books and all those sort of things is like the tip of the iceberg as far as yep. threats to the Imperium. And really, the Inquisition deals with everything below the waterline. Like, like a little bit above the waterline as well, but most of it's sort of the unseen war for the soul of the Imperium and the soul yeah. of every Imperial citizen. Yep. So that, that sort of gives you a bit of an idea. And obviously, the Inquisition is a catch-all term for... Oh, 
are they a department? I would say they're a department or a monolithic organization that sort of sits to one side of the imperial hierarchy. Um, it, it, it's it's sort of its own. Yeah, they're an order, right? So they're like, um, are they the Auto Inquisitorius? Well, they just get really talked about as the Inquisition. Their, their subsequent parts are all autos, but yeah. they, the Inquisition is like a catch-all. Um, it, it isn't a, it isn't considered to be part of the Adaptus Terra. It, it sort of sits no. outside of it, um, which is kind of interesting. But it's made up in the main of a whole lot of individual groups or specialties, if you like, that do different things. And there's three main ones, which is the Auto Hereticus, which deals with um, yep. heretics, basically, heretics and witches. You have the Auto Xenos, which deals with the alien. Yes. And then you have the Auto Malleus, which is the hammer of demons. Um, so they deal with the physical threat of chaos um, in most cases, but they're, they're also, they're a bit more interesting than that. And there's a lot more to them. Like, I think a lot of people just know them as sort of like demon hunters. Um, but what, what I think we need to do is take a step back for a lot of the listeners and just explain that we as gamers looking bird's eye view on a lot of the narrative and a lot of the game know far more than any Imperial citizen would ever know in their lifetime about the Imperium. And one of the biggest things is that the existence of chaos and the existence of demons is not actually that widespread. And how specific that information is, is, you know, it's not really specific at all. Like people don't know about it and it's prescribed information as well. If you find out about it, your life is forfeit to the Inquisition mm -hmm. um, for knowing that. So it's very much kept under wraps. And one of the things that um, I refreshed myself on from going back to that Codex Imperialis from second edition, where they talk about the Grey Knights and they talk about the, um, the Auto Malaeus Inquisitors, because they're the only ones that are mentioned in second edition in this book, is that nobody knows that demons exist. If you find out demons exist, your life is forfeit because you're tainted by the fact that you know that demons exist. And as such, because the auto malleus exists and people know that it exists, is it actually has to have another function apart from being the hammer of demons. So it's actually the watchdog for the Inquisition. So it's the auto that oversees the rest of the autos. And one thing that was really interesting, and I had never picked this up before, um, because it doesn't come out so much in the more recent war, is that the Automalleus is far more wide-ranging in their remit and responsibilities than the rest of the Inquisition is. And as much as all Inquisitors and all Inquisitorial agents can sort of go around with the, the seal of the Emperor and requisition things and, you know, basically say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be taking over this, you know, this guard regiment and I'm going to, you know, destroy this planet over here and the rest of it... Um, the demon hunters actually do it on a far greater scale and their responsibility is much greater for it. So you have these instances, um, and we're going to talk about one a bit later on in the siege of Vrax, where they can basically take over entire systems 
and they can't be challenged by people. Um, and in most cases, uh, and you sort of read about this in the fluff when you get into the inquisitorial stuff, where there are some inquisitors and there are some forces within the Imperium that will push back against that inquisitorial seal and the politics comes into play. And basically what the what the background on the Malayas was saying is that if anybody ever dared do it, whether they're in a starters chapter, um, part of the church, you know, anybody like that, that basically they would they, they would be destroyed. Um, it, like it wouldn't be like, you know, there is no way that you would ever stand up to them. There's no way you would ever push back um, on specifically the order of um, Malayas because they would just end you. And they're basically saying in the, um, in the background, this is, from, as I said, you know, second and third edition, that they have completely removed the High Lords of Terror on more than one occasion and replaced them all. Um, yes. Which is rather interesting. Yep. Um, so. Yeah, it certainly feels like <laughs> of, of all the Ordos of the Inquisition, the, the Ordo Malleus are certainly the ones who seem to be operating on the grandest scale, right? Like, they're the guys who are not just exterminating or destroying planets, but are kind of quarantining systems. Yeah, on yeah, a regular and, basis. Yeah, and and I think one of the the other things that goes along with it is that they have what is called the the Malayus remit, which comes directly from the mouth of the emperor during the Horus Heresy when he establishes the Inquisition. And between scholars, there is a bit of an argument about. When the Inquisition was formed, it wasn't broken up into orders yet. And yes. when it did break, um, I think it was in the 31st or the 32nd millennium, and you ended up with the Auto Xenos and the Auto Malayas, that there is some infighting as to which is the which is the original auto. Um, but it, it's considered that the Auto Malayas was the original. Um, and those, in those, those original ideas uh, for the creation of the Inquisition is, is what acts as the groundwork for the Auto Malayas. And as a result, it's considered to be the oldest of the three main autos of the Inquisition. And it's also the most structured in terms of its hierarchy and the way that it works. But the flip side is it's also by far the smallest, has the least number of members, although they are generally far more powerful than any of the other Inquisition agents in the other Ordos, which is yeah. really interesting. Um, I, I guess it's also worth noting that their individual Ordo um, sigil is that of uh, a, an eagle holding a rod and an axe. Um, specifically, it's a force rod and a force axe which is kind of yep. cool. I haven't managed to find a picture of it anywhere. I went looking for quite a bit today for one, but it is described and it is suggested that most um, most agents of the auto have it tattooed somewhere on their body, um, which right is kind of the, cool. the Hydra, right? Yeah, yeah, right next to the Hydra. Um, and the other really cool thing that I sort of came across, and I, and I think I did know this, I had come across it before, is that... Um, Automalais Inquisitors are the only humans ever to have been allowed within the Black Library. Um, and it's happened on more than one occasion as well, um, mm. where they've been allowed access to it um, by the Harlequins, which is kind of incredible. Um, and the other really cool thing that bounces off your comment about, you know, knowledge and them being sort of, you know, protectors of a lot of knowledge 
they're the only imperial organization that is allowed to keep the true history of the Horus heresy. Yes. Um, which is kind of really interesting to, to think about because it's this idea that, you know, most imperial citizens know a tiny bit, but they don't really know what happened to Horus. They don't know why he went bad. Um, in some cases, they don't even realize that he was good to start off with. Um, that's an interesting one I've heard about him in the past, that he kind of is just well, this big bad. That's the that's the whole point of that um, that Eisenhorn short story, right? The Keeler image. Mm. There's a there's a whole short story in in I know we'll talk about Eisenhorn later, but there's a whole short story in the Eisenhorn sort of collection of of works where the Inquisition is working really hard to reacquire a picture of that Euphrates Keeler took of Horace on the deck of the Vengeful Spirit during the Great Crusade, taking an oath of moment from his Mournival. Because he looks like a hero. Yeah. And we can't have that. Yeah. And, and, and look, that's, it, it's, it's just fascinating because you, you kind of start to put yourself in the, the shoes of like an imperial citizen. And you're just like, yeah, I've got no idea what's going on. I, I just go to the factory and make last guns all day or, you know, the food processing plant or the docks or whatever it is. And I just go about my life and everything happens far, far, far above my pay grade. Um, but there's a ton of, of really interesting stuff here with um, the Malayas. And obviously, you know, going back to Rogue Trader, um, so, you know, it's 30 years worth of war that's been built up, which is really, really, really cool. So uh, their remit within the Imperium, as I said, you know, like there's the Demon Hunter side. So they talk about that being the Demon Without, which is the physical manifestations of chaos. So, you know, go and banish the bloodthirsters, go and banish the Keeper of Secrets, the greater demons, um, send them back to the Immaterium. And then there's the demon within, which is talking about corrupted, people corrupted by chaos, um, but on a great, on a far greater level than, I guess, garden variety cultists that may not know what they've kind of stumbled into or aren't on that path. It's very much the idea of, you know, um, agents of chaos that can be like vessels for demons that are powerful psychers uh, or that are in powerful positions. Um, there are also obviously, you know, any rogue inquisitors that end up down the path of, of chaos um, and the renegade that uh, the Malayas remit says to them that basically they're the ones that have to go and drag them back to the light and purify them, which is really interesting because it kind of, um, in a lot of cases, puts them at, you, you know, puts them at odds with uh, the Auto Hereticus. Uh, yeah, and well, that's the thing, right? The Hereticus often try and, like, they take that as their responsibility as well, right? There's so many stories of the Auto Hereticus doing exactly that because it's their job. Yeah, and, and, and I, I came across a, a story in the... I've got it sitting here. Hang on. It's the Inquisitor Annual from 20... Uh, <laughs> the Inquisitor Annual from 2004, sorry. Um, called Exterminatus, which is a whole lot of stuff. Yep. And there's, a, uh, there's a story in here that's basically, um, I think it's Witch Hunter Tyrus, who, who's one of the most famous witch hunters. Uh, and they're both going after, and, and then there's this Malayas Inquisitor's acolyte, and they're both going after this rogue Inquisitor. And Tyrus basically beats this Malayas Inquisitor acolyte 
and the rest of the retinue, you know, all over the place because he's brought an entire army with him to go after this guy. And then the end result of it is basically the Malaeus Inquisitor appears and is like, Tyrus, fuck off if you want to live and take everybody with you. And it's just all over. They just like completely back down. Um, and the idea is that um, the Malaeus Inquisitor didn't want this renegade becoming public knowledge, whereas Tyrus wants to like tie him to a stake and burn him in front of 10 million people. Yeah, exactly. And show like, you know, how pure, you know, like purify him in the flames and they want to, you know, do it on the steps of a giant cathedral kind of thing. Whereas um, this other guy wants to drag him away to a cell um, and interrogate him and then just dispose of him and get rid of the taint. And that's kind of how the Automalaeus works is it's, it's a very shadowy organization and they actually have a, there's another like minor auto of the inquisition that follows around the Malaeus inquisitors and has to go and expunge all the records and retreat all the Imperial records after the Malaeus inquisitors have been through. Yes. Um, and one of the things that, that came up is that basically this idea, and I'm jumping around a little bit here, but uh, they don't, they use humans like they use Imperial Guard regiments when they need to. They have human um, acolytes and retinues that go with them. But they're also, you know, if they do actually come across demons, regular humans just through seeing them and, and having any sort of contact with them, if they manage to survive it, it's still considered to be tainted and they have to be destroyed. And yep. so one of the things is that this other like minor order has to come up with reasons for why all these guard regiments keep disappearing shortly after conflicts. So <laughs> a lot of, a, a lot of them get ambushed by elder pirates. Um, after the engagement, they leave the planet as, as heroes and they're all given, you know, full military honors and they put them on troop ships and then basically destroy them in orbit and then go, Oh yeah. Yeah. Elder Corsairs, right. They were um, behind that asteroid and yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, and obviously, you know, um, yeah, sort of, sort of adds to that shadowiness that sort of goes with them, which I think is just absolutely cool. So that's their, that's their remit within the Imperium is basically to oversee the rest of the Inquisition as well as deal with demons and renegades, uh, which is awesome. And as far as they're concerned, that was handed down by the Emperor. Um, it yeah. wasn't something that came out of, you know, Malkador's mouth. It didn't come out of the High Lords of Terror post-heresy. Um, so it's the highest authority, basically. So, as I said before, the, the structure of the Automalaeus is, is very rigid and hierarchical. So it's overseen by 169 hidden masters. So what these guys are called. Uh, nobody knows who they are. There's a sense that even the hidden masters don't know who the other hidden masters are. They're all individuals and they don't know the rest of them except as a collective. The other fascinating thing that I unearthed about the hidden masters is that they are the only members of the Imperium that are able to force an audience with the Emperor. So they cannot be denied an audience even by the custodian guard. 
if they yep. ask if they want access to the throne room, they are given it no questions asked. Um, which means quite a few of them are most probably um, auditory imperiators, which means they've been in the presence and communed with the emperor. So have a think about the implications that this has on the war and the background of the Imperium, that you have this organisation that has, during its history, completely upended the political spectrum of the Imperium from the shadows for apparently no good reason, <laughs> yet they have a direct line to Dad. Yep. Um, which I thought was just so absolutely awesome. Um so underneath the hidden masters, they have what are called the um, the chambers practical, and then the chambers practical are overseen by um, inquisitor lords that are called proctors, and then you've got sub proctors, and then within the chambers practical, you then have the rest of the inquisitorial agents, and they're like the active inquisitorial um, agents that go out into the galaxy and lead demon hunter strike forces and hunt down demons and renegades and the rest of it. They then have the Chamber Militant, which is the Grey Knights, which we'll talk a little bit about later. And then they have another chamber, which I thought was really cool, which is called the Chambers Theoretical and Historical. Mm. And the idea behind these guys is they're all the Malayas Inquisitors and agents that are no longer able to work in the field. So because they're so incredibly ancient, or because they've suffered debilitating um, damage uh, during their lives. Um, and But their knowledge is so important that they get put into these um, basically giant libraries and they research and they record. Um, and so much of the work is done within this chamber, theoretical and historical, and then it's fed out to the chamber's practical. Yep. Um, which I thought was very, very cool. So that's kind of the way that the um, the auto is organised um, and everything else kind of fits between it. And as we were saying earlier, is it's, it's quite a small part of the Inquisition. It's the smallest by far. And they were saying that, you know, some of the chambers may be only made up of like five or six Inquisitors at a particular time, um, yeah. ranging up to, you know, several hundred Inquisitors depending on what's, hap uh, what's happening. And as with all the autos, it's arranged geographically. So you have subsectors yep. um, in the same way the other autos do, which is kind of um, kind of good. They sit there and, and keep an eye on, on everything else that's going on within the Inquisition. So they exist. Um, yeah. Doug, do you want to tell us a bit about what, uh, what a Malaeus Inquisitor is like and I guess how they differ from, say, your Xenos or your, uh, your Hereticus Inquisitors? Yeah, I mean, thank you for giving me the, the impossible one, right? What is this particular <laughs> brand of the Inquisition like? Um, because one of the things that they always tell you about the Inquisition is that despite the fact that they're organised into things like autos and, and chambers and stuff, there's a hundred different competing philosophies in every auto, including the auto Malleus. Um, where you've got like you know radicals and Puritans, and although probably fewer Puritans in in the Auto Malleus, given that they're all psychers, just about, um, <laughs> and your your Thorians sort of, oh sorry, your Amalathians are very very anti psycher, um, mm. but there are plenty of you know um, uh, purists that are that are still psychers. Yeah, Isaac, well, for example. Yeah, uh, Vogue, 
Commodus Vogue is, is a really good example of a Malayus Inquisitor yeah. that's bordering on, on Puritan, except he, he's an Almalthian, but um, because he's such a powerful sacker. No, 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 no. He's, he's a Malayus Inquisitor. Eisenhorn at the t- Eisenhorn at the time of their meeting is the is the Auto Xenos Inquisitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought he anyway, because um, Osma's Osma and Heldane are the two big Malleus Inquisitors uh, throughout the Eisenhorn series, and then Heldane, of course, goes on to be a shit stain in Gaunt's Ghost as well. Um, <laughs> Good old horse face. Oh, yeah, he is Auto Malleus. There you go, Commodus Vogue, yeah. Auto Malleus. Yeah, you are quite correct. Um, Yes, but anyway, so they're all mostly psychers. They tend to be quite beefy as well. Like, they, they spend most of their time out in the field fighting demons and demon-empowered individuals, so it makes sense that they've got to be pretty peak in terms of physical fitness um, and sort of boosting themselves up with bionics where they need to. Yeah, it was, there's actually um, there's quite a lot of information that sort of talks about them... Um, having a lot of access to almost space marine levels of enhancement, uh, gene therapies and the rest of it. Um, oh, and my, so and, and, and for Phaeron, first oh, yeah. auto malleus inquisitor. <laughs> well, he did spend a lot of time beating up Orgar, right? That probably qualifies yeah, it. That's yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Lucifer first auto malleus inquisitor. <laughs> no, what's his fucking name? Um, yeah, Lucifer, right? Luther, wrong one. Fuck. Yeah, sorry. I thought that's who you were talking about. Anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was that was like like, like, yeah. No, I wasn't thinking of Satan. (laughs) No, No, well, I mean, it's basically the what they're playing it as, right? Anyway, um, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Often, often gene enhanced, um, and normally in power armor, right? There's not many of them that don't go to war in a, a custom suit of power armor that will accommodate them. Yeah, the, de- definitely that idea that while you know the Xenos guys and the um, and the Hereticus guys might be really happy hanging out in you know black body trousers and, and and body gloves and some carapace armor, that you know if you're going to go mess with demons, it's really a case of put on your Terminator armor, put on your power armor, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and take as much uh, take as much yeah shielding as you possibly can. Yes, and then surround yourself with stormtroopers. Who yes. can just and take the hits for you. <laughs> yes, ideally. Um, yeah, so they're often using quite sizable strike forces, often because they're dealing with demon incursions, right? By the time they get there, they're often expecting that at least a few demons will have made it through. And, you know, it, while demons aren't great on the tabletop, putting one down in the law is quite hard. Yeah, and obviously the the ramifications, as we've already chatted about, that you know the moment you, the moment you have a demon step out of the warp onto a planet, yeah. the, the taint that that can bring to that planet is is almost impossible to expunge without, you know, destroying the planet in some cases, depending on 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 how radical you are um, in in your thoughts. But I think. Um, yeah, they're basically rocking around where possible with with full armies of guys, uh, or they're very quickly yeah. requisitioning them. They know going into into a particular theater what they need to do to take control of the situation. And as we're saying, that uh, the Malayus remit allows them to do that at quite a distance as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. 
Um, other than that, I mean, they've got access to some particular war gear as well because they're so psychic. They end up with stuff like psi cannons and basically everybody's got a force weapon, all that sort of stuff. Um, and their their biggest weapon is normally their knowledge, right? Like the the books they have access to, the the ways of binding and unbinding demons and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, often gives them the edge on the on the the battlefield. Yeah, when a bunch I, of demons show up. Yeah, I think one of the really the really interesting things with it is the idea that you know almost all of them are psychers and incredibly powerful ones. Um, it yeah. suggests that the few. Malayas Inquisitors that are not psychers are still incredibly potent mentally. Yep. They just can't project it. Um, but everything they arm themselves with is basically an extension of their psychic will. Yeah. Because that's how you unbind demons. It's, it's not by shooting them with bolt around. It's not by stabbing them with swords. It's about destroying their psychic essence and the connection to the material plane. And so things like psi cannons are, you know, like like they're like heavy bolters basically, but with psychically imbued ammunition that you then charge up with your own psychic powers and then fire at demons. Um, and then all of the the force weapons in there, spe- the specific ones are the nemesis force weapons, are realistically like yes, it looks like a sword, yes, it looks like a halberd or a, a glaive or something like that, or even their demon hammers. Um, but realistically, what they are is um, is focus points for the psychic power of the Inquisitor. Yeah. And that's where the damage really comes from when they go after demons. Yes. And you read in a lot of the lore that, you know, like you might have this gigantic, towering bloodthirster, you know, and you just have this, you know, human, and he might be to some extent enhanced and the rest of it. But what's keeping him there is that psychic ability that he's got to shield himself. And then inevitably when he you know, hopefully takes this demon down is it's done, you know, using the psychic power. He's not, you know, chopping its head off with a sword and the demon's bleeding out or something like that. It's being utterly annihilated and sent back to the warp by psychic power, which is kind of cool. Um, and the, the two books you were talking about, um, the first one is the Grimoire of True Names. So this is something yep. that was that's been put together over the millennia, um, most probably by those chambers, theoretical and historical, the the librarian guys. And it contains the names, the true names of every greater demon um, that's ever been banished um, by the order. And the yeah. idea is, is that if you know the name of the demon, the true name of the demon, it gives you power over it. So you can bind them and banish them using their names. Um, which is really cool. So a lot of them will carry copies of this book. And obviously one of the most important things, one of their most important duties in fighting the demon without is adding more names to that book. Because the moment you know that name, you have power over that demon. So you banish it. And the idea is, you know, you banish the demon for a hundred years back to the warp and then it's able to re-manifest itself. And then you have to go and find it and banish it again. So you have these stories where you have incredibly long-lived inquisitors or even inquisitors and then their protégés and then their protégés. And their entire life's work through multiple generations is basically just making sure that this one demon that gets banished stays banished. Yeah. And they just follow it through time and space. And every time it pops up again, they pull the book out, they speak its name and they have the big fight and then they eventually, you know, emerge victorious over it 
and then they go about doing their business and they're like hang on set the alarm for you know another hundred years it's going to pop up again and they spend the rest of the time working out where it's going to pop up yep um and then the other one is the liber demonicum so this is the book that if you've ever seen uh gray knight armor they have a golden book symbol with a sword through it um that's the liber demonicum and apparently a lot of the inquisitors actually carry copies of it as well and this is sort of the dummy's guide to banishing demons in 40k for want of a better word um and it's actually the the interesting thing i found was it's specifically noted that it's not a paper book that it's actually an, an ipad basically yeah. um and and that it carries all this you know all this information on you know banishment rituals and binding rituals um and they all carry it with them along with you know a lot of them have these um the grimoire of true names as well although a lot of that is contained within the Luba demonicum yeah and that's the thing right they've also all got their own sort of personal libraries that are full of their specific experience yeah 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 the sort of collective knowledge of yeah, of, of of them and anybody obviously they've served with, yeah. and the rest of it, um, and they're they're definitely incredibly keen to keep building on that knowledge base, um, with the uh, obviously the um, the final goal of being able to just completely suppress chaos in all of its forms, yep, um, which is kind of kind of interesting and exciting, uh, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of excerpts from the Liber Demonicum that you can find scattered throughout the war yeah which is yeah which is really interesting and really cool and there's even a little bit in there on um like demon primarchs because obviously they know what happened they they know about you know fulgrim they know about angron they know about um perturabo and the rest of them and so everything all that knowledge is contained there as well so that if they ever come across them they know how to deal with them um, it's really interesting. Yeah, so um, that that's kind of that's kind of yeah the Autobiography Inquisitors. Um, something something else that I, I I thought was cool when I was sort of reading through some fluff uh, in regards to like their retinues of um, acolytes is they talk about Inquisitorial stormtroopers quite a fair bit. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I I didn't sort of realize, and I used to have an Inquisitorial Stormtrooper army back in like third and fourth edition when it was a possibility, um, that individual Inquisitorial Stormtroopers are sponsored from the Scholar uh, Progenium. So from when they're quite young, they're selected for Inquisitorial details. Um, But they're generally just taken away like nobody knows where they've gone they're just removed one day they're just not there anymore and they're taken to inquisitorial facilities and trained further um and they're saying that that obviously um they're one of the only groups of humans that basically get away with working with malaeus inquisitors and not getting murdered um (laughs) which i thought was kind of interesting yeah Um, the other the other one is space marines right because you can't it takes so long to make a space marine you can't just shoot him in the head yes uh, every time they see a blood letter so <laughs> yeah, yeah but but the automalia still mind scrubs them right still wipes it out from their brains yeah and uh, there was and there were one of the fluff says that you know some space marine chapters are far more 
uh, like they can deal with the mind scrubbing a lot better. Like it doesn't affect them. And then other ones, it, it basically destroys them anyway. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, and they have all sorts of problems. And they were saying that for that reason, Malayus Inquisitors very rarely will ever request support from the Astartes. Like they don't like yep. using them because they know how important a resource they are. And obviously they have the Grey Knights. They have the ability to call on their own chamber militant if they need, you know, the transhuman insanity that is space marines. Um, yeah. They've got access to that sort of thing, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I remember back in the original Demon Hunters Codex in third edition that there was this really annoying army creation rule was that if you had seconded space marines in an army you couldn't have gray knights in the same army yeah right and that was yeah um and that was where that came from was the idea was that if you had access to gray knights there is no way they would ever use normal space marines yep um which is really cool um made for some rather interesting um force organization uh choices back in the day uh, but back then, the best thing to do was just Grey Knights everywhere with, you know, power power weapons and three-plus armor saves. <laughs> yeah. So, I, mean, that, that, I mean, we'll probably get into it when we, when we talk about the Chamber Militant, but the Grey Knights are meant to be reasonably unknown across the galaxy as well, right? Like, they're not meant to be... I mean, as much as they're a bunch of dudes in specifically crafted silver armor that is unique amongst all of the Space Marine chapters... Um, and, you know, they're all psychic and they're all, like, wielding halberds, which no other Space Marine chapter does. They're still, yeah, unknown to the rest of the galaxy. Yeah, and, and there's a sense that um, even amongst the Space Marine chapters, not very yes. many of them know about the Grey Knights. Because the implication is that if they know about the Grey Knights, it means they've been dealing with demons, which means they've been mind-scrubbed. Um, and obviously humans, if they see grey knights, it means there's demons and they're going to get eradicated at the end of it anyway, if that happens. Yes. Um, Mercifully removed although, before further demonic insanity can ensue. Yeah, that's, that's it. Before the, before the madness and the soul tainting happens, we'll just quickly shuffle you, shuffle off your mortal coil for you. Send them to the emperor. And, and that, that, that's a, that's quite a good segue into, um, I put a section in here about sort of notable victories uh, of the Auto Malaeus. Mm. And the really big one is actually the first war for Armageddon, uh, which if you've never ever come across That's this... the second has... war for Armageddon, right? That was the first <laughs> war? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The second war for Armageddon is the first war. There never was a first war. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but <laughs> it had nothing to do with orcs and everything to right. do with a demon primarch called Angron. Um, and a whole bunch of bloodletters and bloodthirsters. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened was they started wreaking havoc across Armageddon, and they basically sent, I think it was almost the entire chapter of Grey Knights there to deal yes, with Akron right. and, try and, and, and try and unbind him from the Materium and send him back to the warp for a hundred years. Uh, and they did succeed. They did succeed. They did save Armageddon. Um, but it's a great... <laughs> it's, his, it's his great case study in the way that they had to then deal with it because Armageddon was such is such an important planet for the Imperium in terms of, like, the output of its industry. 
that they couldn't burn the planet to the ground they had to try and like boots on the ground it and get rid of these demons so it's like like there's a whole bunch of stories about it in in the fluff and it's you know these you know millions upon millions of blood bloodletters and bloodthirsters you know just constant waves attacking these grainite terminators that are slowly you know that are killing hundreds but they're slowly being overwhelmed as they're trying to sort of banish the larger, greater demons that are there and, and ultimately Angron himself um, without taking out the planet at the same time. And one of the one of the things is that um, I think it's actually, I, I want to say it's the Space Wolves yeah. somehow end up getting involved in it. Well, they're on, they're on Armageddon first. So the, the Space Wolves have the like the job of defending the area of space that Armageddon's in at the time. And so then Angron rocks up and the Space Wolves are already sort of on deck with troops in the field. And so Logan Grimnar sort of digs in and then is like, oh shit, demons. Um, and so, you know, um, texts the Grey Knights and is like, hey, come over. And they're like, can't, I'm busy. Like, but Angron's here. And then they bounce over uh, yeah. with... It says here, 109 Terminator Assault Marines. 109? Which is a lot. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, and, and there's sort of this, this issue after everything sort of settles down that um, they want to kind of purge everybody. And mm -hmm. Logan's not a big fan of that happening. Um, so he actually sort of like stands up to it and kind of says, no, look, you don't need to do this. Um, you don't need to basically like destroy the entire human human population of Armageddon. <laughs> it's too important um, for that to have happen. Um, so that's yeah, yeah. That, that that's sort of an, an, an interesting interplay there. Um, and then the other the other one that I sort of noted down is the Siege of Vrax, uh, which comes out of one of those um, Forge World Imperial Armor books that we love so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the Siege of Rax, sort of the cliff notes to it is an Imperial preacher goes bad and takes um, the entire Vrax system with him. Um, Vrax happens to be an Imperial armory world, uh, which means it's basically a giant weapons locker. Um, yep. And it falls to chaos seemingly overnight. And the Imperium's on the back foot for years in an attempt to try and regain um, Vrax and the surrounding worlds. And the, <laughs> the, the, the basically, what, in the end, what happens is that um, Inquisitor Lord Hector Rex of the Ordo Malleus appears, takes control of the entire theatre of war, mm -hmm. um, and then deals with it um in in the process beating up a bunch of greater demons um but even that uh he, he ends up quarantining the entire system um purging and then in, and then quarantining um all of it um so no no imperial citizenry left uh the imperial guard regiments that were mainly uh death corps regiments all completely purged um, all the space marines, and there were multiple chapters. Um, there were dark angels, uh, there were raptors. Um, there are a few other chapters that fought on Vrax. Um, any that oh, were around, cool. ah, 
I have the list if you would like to. Ah, you have the list, yes. Um, the Angels of Absolution, the Red Hunters, the Red Scorpions, and that's it, other than the Grey Knights. Ooh. Oh, right. Angels of Absolution are Dark Angels successes. Sorry, Dark Angels. Sorry, yes. and five companies of Dark Angels. You're right. So five companies yeah. of Dark Angels and the Angels of Absolution. But from what I understand, they weren't really involved in most of the combat, right? They just sort of rocked up. Well, they were... The and then yeah, uh, well, and they were supposed to like hang on what? Yeah, they were supposedly hunting fallen. Yes. is what sort of comes out in that. Um, but quite a few of those space friends apparently ended up getting mind scrubbed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were around, so I don't know whether that's that whether that's the Dark Angels or whether it's the Red Scorpions or who it was. But apparently, yeah, a lot of that stuff's been been put through sort of afterwards. That there was sort of a conclave after Vrax was won back and eventually, yeah, they just sanctioned everything and just locked it off um, yep. and just went, no, even though this is incredibly important, there's no way we can protect anybody from the taint of chaos on this world because of what's happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously the two big chaos gods that were involved with Vrax were Nurgle and Korn. Um, yep. And so the lasting lingering effects of, of those two sort of, destroyed any any usefulness that Vrax sort of has. So Yeah. Pure um, so, pure victory, but Yes. And uh, to give you an idea on the Red Hunters, who are the other guys who were there other than the Red Scorpions who are kind of well known and basically the Dark Angels and the Dark Angels but a different colour. Um the Red Hunters are one of those chapters that takes a mind scrub pretty well. Oh, so okay, they, right. They tend to get a lot of jobs with the Inquisition um, to the point where their chapter symbol is a skull with the Inquisitorial eye in it. Ah, right. Yeah, because there uh, are... Well, that's actually good. That, that's, that leads to something rather interesting that I left out of this is um, possible other links to the Auto Malaeus um, with chapters such as the Exorcists. Yes. Um, yeah, same sort of thing, I suspect. Because these guys, yeah, they take a mind wipe pretty well. Um, preserves their souls and their physical abilities, albeit at the cost of memory, skills, experience, and personality. So apparently they're a bunch of <laughs> passionless jerks. Um, so space brains without personality. hold the balls the right way around. But, <laughs> but we can download that back into them. We just mind wipe them every time. Like, basically, it says their chapter, chapter line brethren are routinely subjected to a, a mnemonic purgation. <laughs> so it's not even like it's just when they fight with the Inquisition. They're just like, eh, it's been a been a couple of weeks. Just, just wait over real quick. Over and then re-download yeah. Kung Fu. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, da -da -da -da. Yep, make, they make their squads available for rapid response to Inquisitorial calls for assistance. Yeah, there you go. So, Oh, they were on Armageddon as well. There you go. Uh, yeah. Uh, Huh. <laughs> so the the whole thing where Logan Grimnar refused to allow Armageddon to be just completely purged um, are referred to by the Space Wolves as the Months of Shame because they end up losing and everybody who the Inquisition wants to purge, they pretty much purge. Um, yep. But the Red Hunters are the ones who are called to besiege Fenris. Right. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with the Inquisition, I guess, is the... Um... Yeah, <laughs> the upshoot of that. Um, so, did you want to have a have a quick chat about the uh, the chamber militant? 
of the Automalias. Have a chat about the Grey Knights. Like we kind of have roundabout. Yeah, the well, yeah, they're they're kind of they were set up also very early post Horus Heresy, right? They were pretty well, much during, set up well during, during right, like in the yeah, very yeah, closing yeah. years of it. Uh, well, Malkador well, sets up Titan as a as a quiet little place for him to be building a force. Yeah, and then hides it in a pocket dimension, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, is kind of interesting. Nobody's meant to know about the Grey Knights. Have you seen the... Is it the Ryu art um, Grey Knights comic? No, I haven't. Hang on. Uh, it's, it's great. It's basically three Inquisitors sitting around a table being like, we need a, a, like a, a rapid response force that's... Um, uh, you know, stealth... Well, not stealthy, but that disguises well as anything else and nobody can know that they're ours. And then the next panel is like Cute a Grey ass. Knight Paladin Terminator stabbing a blood uh, a bloodletter in the head with a guardsman watching him, and it, and then the the Terminator is just like shh. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess what what is there to say about the Grey Knights? Um, they're all psychers. Yep, they're uh, supposedly the most pure psychers in the Imperium. Um, oh, supposedly the, yeah, pretty much. Um, because Magnus did nothing wrong, right? So, um, no Grey Knight has ever fallen to chaos, has ever been tainted by chaos. Um, although I'm pretty sure there's now novels kicking around where that is exactly what happens in the novel. Um, so that's they've bathed in Sisters of Battle blood, and if that doesn't sort of (laughs) unhinge you a bit. That 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 might be, um, yeah. That might be what's being referred to there. Um, but yeah, basically, they're all they're all incredibly powerful psychers in their own rights. Um, they go through much the same genetic enhancement as normal space marines, although apparently they have additional enhancements mm-hmm. um, that allow them to deal with basically, you know, deal with a taint of chaos, strengthen their minds. Um, their training is much, much, much more rigorous. Um, and the psychic component of it is massive. Like, it's far more important than skilled arms or anything like that, although they're all consummate warriors, um, even among, you know, the rest of the Space Marines. Um, they're yeah. given... Yep. No, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. In that and, and that's one of those things that, particularly as we sort of start intersecting with the new things that are happening across the Imperium. One of the reasons you don't have Primaris Grey Knights at this point is because they have those little extra bits and pieces in their gene seed, which seems to be confounding uh, Belisarius' call Does... preventing him from Primarisifying Drago and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, we, do we actually know if Call knows about them and has That's access a good point. to that sort of thing? Because there's... There's a sense that like Gilliman wouldn't have known about them. Yeah. So I wonder if um if Core would have ever known about them. Yeah. Um, you would think though, right? Like he's well, Kaul yeah, in particular is yeah. probably the guy who would know. Particularly given how often he backs up his brain. Yeah, that's a possibility, actually. He has been around like, long enough to he's, know about He's them. a firm believer in the old 3-2-1 data storage system, <laughs> right? Three backups, two different formats, one off-site. Yep. 
Um, yes. Yeah. So I suspect he would know. Mind but scrub this bitch. I think they mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You mind scrub him, and he's just restoring from an old backup. Where he's like, hang on, I fought demons. And there were some grey knights there. What the hell's a grey knight? Just go googling. <laughs> then the search history sort of triggers off another grey knight, sort of knock on the door. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like those old sort of men in black mind blank yeah. loops. <laughs> and and we'll go, I'd imagine that, you know, like obviously the you know, a lot of the tech that they get is is from the Mechanicus, so he probably would know about some of that as well. Like they have their um, their Aegis armor, which yep. is like psychically warded suits of power armor and Terminator armor. Um, so like heavily inscribed, um, covered in unguents, yep. lots of unguents and sacred oils. They love that stuff. Um, the Nemesis Force weapons, which we've talked about um, previously. Um, which are pretty impressive. They have a lot of the, um, their sort of, their big thing is the um, wrist mounted storm bolters. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of their Nemesis force weapons are two handed weapons. Um, so they have the wrist mounted storm bolters. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is really kind of cool. Um, the other thing to sort of note with the Grey Knights is that they're not organized the same way as the Space Marine chapter either. Um, they're organized. Yeah. Into- brotherhoods instead of companies and they don't have fixed numbers um so it's entirely possible although it's, it's hinted that there's generally a lot less gray knights than other space marines but against a space marine chapter of a thousand space marines there might be far more gray knights than that in the galaxy it's never sort of explained how many there are although the idea that there are 109 of them at armageddon um, that would be one of the biggest deployments of Grey Knights anywhere in Imperial history, um, as far as we can yeah. kind of understand. Um, and in most cases, a single Grey Knight can be dispatched um, yep. on their own to deal with some sort of demonic incursion or to back up an Inquisitor. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's the um, that's purely how Grey Knights work, is they're the righteous hammer of the inquisition they don't generally do things on their own they'll be called in yeah. by an inquisitor they'll be led and controlled by an inquisitor um that will have done sort of you know the backgrounds and the legwork on it you know they will have found you know the demonic coven or you know where this new greater demon is going to manifest on a planet um and then they yeah basically dial up an uber um and get the great knights down there to sort of deal with it uh, one of the one of the big things with the Grey Knights is that they're very much um, set up for rapid deployment and strikes. So they have um, you know specialist units like strike squads um, that all utilize teleport homers. Uh, they use a lot of um, vehicles and armor. Uh, so a lot of land raiders, a lot of razorbacks and rhinos, things like mm-hmm. that to move them quickly, and actually quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of like thunderhawks. Um, and things yes. like that to insert them onto the planet. Um, and because, like, a, a Grey Knight strike force might be, as I said, you know, anywhere between one Grey Knight and, you know, a couple of hundred Grey Knights, um, and they have access, obviously, to any sort of technology, arms, armor, um, you know, tanks, flyers, whatever they need, they basically have access to. Um so really, every, like you know, nothing's nothing's out of the ordinary for them. 
Um, if they need it, they'll use it. Just kind of yeah. interesting. I, I think at one point there was a there was an amazing time when you could almost get Grey Knights into Chimeras. <laughs> um, because of the wording in, in, in one of the books, you could kind of get a, get around it and uh, and put them in there if they're with an Inquisitor, um, which was kind of cool. Nice. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think um, it's probably worth dealing with Great Knights at some point in their own episode because I think there's so much stuff on the Great Knights. Um, but suffice to say, they're the um, the strong arm of the Order of Malaeus. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And of course, they were involved in just to sort of give you a bit of a modern history or recent history of the, the Grey Knights. They were involved in the Thousand Suns Siege of Fenris because Magnus showed up. So they were like, huh, we should probably deal with that. Um, and then they were involved in the events surrounding Gulliman coming back um, and the subsequent crusade from Ultramar to Terra. Um, they were involved in the Battle of the Lion's Gate on Terra when there was a demonic incursion there. And then since then have been, as with every military sort of arm of the Imperium, stretched thin dealing with the Great Rift. Yeah, and, and I think there's um, there's definitely a bit of a foreshadowing at the moment that there's going to be quite a bit of psychic awakening, um, most probably to do with the Grey Knights, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, yes. And then <laughs> something I've seen here, just as I'm reading about the, the um, Great Rift, during these campaigns they were forced to annihilate billions of Imperial citizens. So, you know, they're still on track. Sounds standard. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're still cleaning up after themselves, which is <laughs> just, uh, just really good to see. Um, one of the one of the really funny things, and it just goes to show, like you know how messed up the Imperium is, is that because the Order Malaeus is considered the watchdog of the other um, Inquisitorial orders, um, one of the things they investigate is abuse of power by Inquisitors, yep. specifically inquisitors that use exterminatus on populations and planets um the order malaeus actually has as part of their function to assess um when exterminatus is used after the fact obviously and then make a decision as to whether it was the right course of action and then if it was not considered to be the right course of action in a lot of cases they'll declare the inquisitor that declared the exterminatus as being um, a heretic and a traitor, and then they'll hunt them down as a renegade and destroy them. Yep. Yet, generally, in the process of doing that, they end up having to sanction entire populations and more people, and then, you know, who's watching the watchdogs, yeah, right? Yeah, justified. <laughs> justified, that's fine. Um, Inquisitor Cryptman ends up on the wrong end of them, right? Yes. He's, he's stripped yes. his power. Um, well, after he, he just annihilates galaxies, or not galaxies, but like systems in an effort to stop the Tyranids. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing, right, is he was kind of like, you know, if there's no biomass for these guys to consume as they're sort of charging across the galaxy, um, they'll go dormant. So he started just exterminating. I think he did five or six planets. No, um, he did more than that. He kept luring Tyranids in and then nuking the planet. So like they wasted the biomass fighting and then he'd nuke them when they got to digestion. Yeah, I I, th I thought there was something where he... Them. And then he just killed an entire ring of planets around the hive fleet. 
yeah yeah so that's, that all that... they got was was like empty moons basically and then yeah even the automalias were like mm, it's a bit extreme <laughs> yeah i i think there was there was something like he was trying to prove that he could like imprison them in certain parts of space by robbing them of biomass that just go dormant and just sort of hang out so he like wiped out an entire system after they and they came into the system wiped out the whole system and then they just sat there yeah um but yeah no he um he ended up getting declared an excommunicate traitorous um inquisitor by the end of his run although i'm not entirely sure whatever happened no they brought him back oh they did he um he gets declared excommunicate traitorous and then like everybody starts taking the tune in seriously <laughs> Right, um, and they're like, mm, hang on, let's give this guy his reset back, yeah. So, okay, so he does the, the Galactic Cordon. So after one of the two tendrils of Leviathan was destroyed at Tarsus Ultra, um, he begins exterminating worlds in Leviathan's path. Uh, da, 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 da. Yep, yep, yep. So basically the idea is that they expend their resources invading the planet and then they lose the... Um, the payoff. The payoff. So he's declared a, a lunatic. <laughs> Um, but then he's also got Cryptman's Gamble running, or had Cryptman's Gamble running, um, where he directed Leviathan by exterminating planets into an Orkwar. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Expecting <laughs> them to just, like, just, burn each other out. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, he's like, well, he's, he's, he was always like, whoever comes out of that is going to be borderline unstoppable, but it buys us time. <laughs> Yeah. And we need the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think he comes back because he's he's he kind of he's a bit like Eisenhorn, and I guess a few Inquisitors in that he seems to float in and out of being declared a traitor. Yeah, and and I think one of the one of the interesting things, and you pick this up if you read anything from Black Library about the Inquisition, is that you can be declared a traitor, but it doesn't mean everybody knows you're a traitor. Or Correct. cares that you've been declared a traitor, depending on what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I just punched um, Inquisitor Crippman into Google, and he comes up as a personality um, on the right-hand pane that says, Crippman is an Inquisitor, in brackets, well, ex-Inquisitor. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's been lifted from 1D4chan, yeah. So he was an auto-Xenos yeah, Inquisitor, obviously, yep. from yeah, dealing with the Tyranids and the... And Leviathan. Yeah, so so now he's on. He's in with the Death Watch again, um, dealing oh, with right, okay. Tiamat because mm. Tiamat is has stopped, which is the the interesting thing about them. They've stopped pushing into the galaxy and they're building something. Mm. So he's like, mm, none of that shit. Yeah, yeah. Let's go kick over their sandcastle quick. Pretty much, like they're building a thing. Maybe maybe Cryptman should have been an Iron Warrior. They're building something. Knock it down. <laughs> yeah, somebody Kool-Aid man that thing over there. <laughs> um, but yes, that's the Grey Knights. And a bonus bit on Inquisitor Cryptman. Yeah, lovely. And and once again, great segue into the next, uh, the next segment, Hammer of Demons, uh, where mm-hmm. we've each chosen a character. Uh, specifically, uh, I think we've both gone for Inquisitors, haven't we? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, Automyus Inquisitors. Uh, and Doug, you've chosen... He, he was actually going to be my second choice until I pulled open the show notes and realised you'd already p- picked him. Um, but why don't you kick us off with Quicksauce? Well, 
I had forgotten that Commodore's Voke was Automalleus. I almost would have gone Voke instead, who's a great Inquisitor, <laughs> um, just quietly, or Heldane, who's a piece of shit, but we've talked about him before. Um, there's so many good Malleus Inquisitors, but I did pick Quixos, Quixos the Bright, um, who was quite a thing early in his career. So he purged his first planet at the age of 21. Oh, so not, yeah. like, not exterminating it, like, driving demons off the planet at the age of yep. 21. Um, and then goes on to do more and more extreme stuff, including purging a Nurgle subcult on Terra. Um, so he has quite a quite a big CV even early in his career, right? He's got uh, lots of wins under his belt, lots of demons purged and expelled and cast screaming back into the warp. Um, but he's grievously wounded on Lacken 4, um, the demon he's fighting lodges a claw in his heart, Iron Man style. Kind of like the shrapnel in Tony Stark's heart, just about. Yep. Um, and you can't, well, they couldn't pull it out without killing him. So it just sort of sits there. Um, and he's like, well, I've got this demon claw in my heart. What if I start tapping it for power? Because that's going to go really well. Yeah. I mean, it's a resource, right? Chaos is just a resource. Um, <laughs> which is kind of where his thing ends up. Right. Doug, that is the path of the renegade. Well, the radical. Radicals <laughs> are still inquisitors. There's a fine line between radical and renegade. Um, and Quixos believed he was walking it the whole way down. Um, I think he still did on he, his. He, he still did at the time of his death, didn't he? He did. He called Eisenhorn a heretic right at the end. Yeah, because Eisenhorn was stopping the great work. Um, but yes, so he was. He began. <laughs> the fun part is he began nurturing chaos cults that he could control. Um, so, like, because he saw Chaos not as a corrupting influence, but a tool, and he figured that he could use Chaos to beat Chaos. So he was busy nurturing Chaos mm -hmm. cults that he could get to do Chaos-ish things that worked against the greater, the greater sort of aims of Chaos. Um, but he also forged his demon sword, bound to demon hosts, uh, Sherebael and Profanity, uh, to his will. And so they appear quite a bit in Eisenhorn, which we'll talk about a bit later on as well. Um, uh, eventually he's discovered, so Inquisitor Helgrind finds out that he's been uh, keeping a chaos cult going and calls him out on it uh, with his hammer and then is killed. <clears throat> and then Inquisitor Lugenbrow finds him and is also killed and uh, Quixos disappears off into the galaxy. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he fakes his own death at one point, doesn't he? To kind of keep... Uh, he doesn't quite fake his own death, but he goes dormant for about 200 years. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think in Eisenhorn, like, they, yeah, they talk about him like he's just disappeared, just presumed dead, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so by the time Inquisitor Eisenhorn's around, uh, Quixos has been, hasn't been in the... Like, hasn't done anything for 200 years, of, like, in any sort of overt way. And so everybody mm. assumes that he's died. Um, but he's involved in the Necrochuk affair. Um, and Eisenhorn sort of uh, goes after him. Oh, sorry. Eisenhorn gets framed for a lot of stuff. Um, but he ends up uncovering that it's Quixos doing a lot of the work. Um, and eventually sort of forms a coalition with five other Inquisitors that like him um, to go deal with it. And then uh, it turns out that Quixos was using Sherebael and Profanity and all of his little cults and all of his demonic knowledge 
uh, to rebuild the Cadian pylons. Yeah, he he was he was trying to um, wasn't he trying to use like alpha level psychers um, yep. to like amplify the pylon effects in an attempt to close the um, the eye of terror. Basically, so he's <laughs> just a, in a nutshell. Cult. This is what this is this guy's doing today. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's a there's a an imp- there's a like a chaos cult on, or there was a chaos cult at this point on Cadia that none of the Cadian inquisitors had ever bothered with because literally the only thing they were doing, their entire <laughs> reason to exist, was to measure the pylons. That was all. they just went out there with their tape measures. They were surveyors and like their spirit right. levels. Yeah, it was just like a surveyor cult um, who worshipped Sherevale. Who was like, all right, have you got their measurements for me? And if they displeased him, he just immolated them and was like, go measure harder. Um, you know how you like you drive around Sydney, especially like at the moment with all the construction work that's going on in the yeah. city, and you just randomly see like surveyors on street corners with like their all their equipment yep. and stuff. Just yeah, just just on cadence, it's just like oh, it's a fucking cult again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, so that was what he was doing. He was measuring up the Cadian pylons and then rebuilding them and strapping psychers to them um, to either control or close down the flow of the warp into real space, particularly at the Eye of Terror, but you know elsewhere as well. Um, uh, but he's yeah, killed by should... Inquisitor Eisenhorn. Oh, sorry, Echo. Yeah, I was just going to say on, on that point, the really interesting thing is, is, like, you obviously, and in the Eisenhorn books, you get the idea that, you know, he's possibly onto something. Yes, um, because it's very much like he's re- almost re-engineering like Blackstone Fortress tech by doing that. Yep, he's just doing it in a very ramshackle way. Um, but like all all great things in the Imperium, like he's just completely overrun by the bureaucracy and the fact that he's got pet demon hosts. Yes, yeah. Well, plus he's you know not entirely all there. Oh, yeah, right. in, in no way, shape, or form, right? <laughs> one of the things that comes out as you're, as you're reading it is that he's the one who engineered the, the, um, the Thracian atrocity, where Ravenna gets turned from a promising, handsome young man to a pile of meat in a chair, um, and, you know... Oh, yeah, the, decimated the guard down. regiments. Yep. Uh, yep. Titans yep. destroyed. Inquisitors dead, yep. Titans destroyed, civilians out, like, you know, just immolated... All that sort of stuff, um, just, just to get so his hands on a couple of Alpha Plus psychers. Psychers, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, he's not really fighting for the Imperium anymore. No. Well, that, let's, it's let's more kind about of... the win, that's... right? It's yeah, yeah. That that's that's the part. That's that's the path of the radical, right? Is it's the idea yes. that the ends justify the means, right? By and the, the closer, yeah, and the closer you get to that, the more radical you sort of end up, regardless of what your force, regardless of what like philosophy you are, that's where yep. you end up. Yep, pretty much. Um, but yes, so he's he's killed by Eisenhorn, um, and he's Quicksource is three hundred and forty-two when he's finally put down, according to internet maths. Um, he dies calling Eisenhorn a heretic for daring to interrupt the great work of recreating the Cadian pylons. Uh, and his ashes are subsequently launched into the heart of a star, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> yes, when they want to scrub you from existence, they know how to do it, right? Well, that's the other thing, right? They they end up expunging him from every record. Mm. Um, you know, Quicksource never existed. <laughs> yeah, and that would have been the... Um, 
and and if if I remember correctly, and you'll make sure you correct me if I'm not, but when Eisenhorn calls the Conclave of Five to go and deal with him, Voke actually becomes the sponsor of it because yeah. he's the highest ranking Malayus Inquisitor. So he's the one that actually has the responsibility to track down um, the radicals and the renegades. Yeah. But yeah. I have a thing. Yeah, Voke's one who kills him, though, the, doesn't he? No, Profanity kills him. The oh, demon Profanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he, died, he dies in that engagement. He does. Uh, yeah. Pretty much everyone except Eisenhorn dies in that engagement. Uh, Titus doesn't die. Endor, Endor survives only because he's injured early and has to be carried out, but the, the other three yeah. all park it. And I guess Heldane isn't an, isn't an Inquisitor by that point. He's an acolyte. Yeah, and he's not even... No, 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 he would be because he becomes an Inquisitor before Vogue dies. But he's not involved because quick because Voke recognizes that Heldane would have just ratted him out, ratted Eisenhorn out. I mean, oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right because Eisenhorn okay, is technically so, a little bit outside. Yeah, yeah. So Grumman, Raum Grumman, who's the Cadian Inquisitor, who who Lord Inquisitor General Inquisitor Neve sends in her place. He dies. That's right. Yep. Um, Massimo Ricci, he dies. Commodus Voke dies. <laughs> Titus Endor is seriously injured and carried out, and then Eisenhorn uh, finally gets him. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess it goes to show, like you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is is demon hosts and things like that. But you know, mm-hmm. they're 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 really like demons are really no joke. That even these guys that are you know they're set up to deal with them, they're they're trained, they're hardened, and the rest of it, like the like chaos is just still this incredible force right it's the unstoppable force and the inquisition mm-hmm. is trying to be the immovable object but it doesn't quite make it on a lot of occasions no they're still just men at the end of the day right yeah unless you're quicksauce but even then the time <laughs> runs out eventually <laughs> yeah really sherabale is the one who wins out of all of this right if you read the eisenhorn books <laughs> well that's yeah that's that's the point you know, yeah, he's he's the whole the whole thing, and it's it's funny when you <laughs> when you read those books from like you know Cherubal's perspective. It's yep. just everything he wants, he gets. Everything is engineered for him. Everything everybody does around him just completely plays into his hands. Yep. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, or at least he's able to play the game like the long game with it. So even if something goes wrong, he's like, "Yeah, I'll just wait you out." Yeah, that's Fine. it. Yeah, yeah, just 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 fits into his plans, and it's all it's it, it, it's all gravy, right? There's no mm. there's no issues with it. Um, still, still yeah. got to be in there as one of the best characters in any Black Library novel. So good, so good. Most uh, excellent, particularly because he started a cult just to measure the pylons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and he just had uh, a habit of obliterating titans. Yeah. Fuck, I love Sherabale. Um, so, uh, but it's not a it's not a bit on Sherabale. It's a bit on Quixos, and that's the end of Quixos. Quixos the right. Um, very. Cool. How about you? Who did you pick? Well, I'm just going to add one last thing: is if you mm. if you want a really awesome Quixos model, Artel oh, yeah. has one. Uh, I think mm. that he's called Renegade Inquisitor, maybe, or Renegade Agent, or something like that. Um, but there's only, I think there's only one illustration of Quixos, 
and it was in the back of the original Demon Hunters Codex. And basically, um, Artel's taken that and then expanded on it. Um, and the model's fantastic. It's all like half tainted with this giant um, demon sword, um, which is really yes. cool. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it, it's actually part of a duel with Artel's Eisenhorn model. Yep. They young kind Eisenhorn. Of like young Eisenhorn. They kind of look like they're, um, they're fighting against each other, which is really cool. So it's based on. There's actually a few of Quicksauce. Oh, really? There's, a, there's an old artwork called, I think it's called Imperial Entanglements, um, which is Eisenhorn versus Quicksauce. Uh, I was thinking of the one that's just his head. Yeah, there's the, the one of him horns. holding the sword. And, yep. Yeah. And he's yeah, got the hood and the little horns and stuff. There's also one that I think might be of him. Um, uh, it's like a black and white sketch of him. Which is kind of cool. And they're all sort of, they're all still very similar, right? It's still the same sort of thing. Oh, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just said, he's got his hand on the um, the pommel on of the his sword. sword. He's got yeah. like massive nails and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yep. That's very, very cool. Um, but still, the, like the design sort of language of him is always the same. It's still one horn, a couple of bionics hanging out the other side of his head, um, you know, somewhat corrupted with a demon sword. Uh, doesn't look like a, a, a fine, upstanding member of Imperial citizenry. Yeah, that's right. He, he's he's so tainted he can't hide it. And I think Eisenhorn makes that comment at some point, doesn't he? That yes. he sort of, you know, like you're, you're so deep in it that you don't even realise you've been changed, you know, you've changed this much. And he's got like these, you know, frigging horns and, and sharp teeth and he looks like a cadaver. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Very much so. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, well, I will, um, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in now. So I want to talk about the Proctor General of the Conclave of Scarus, Master of the 34th Chamber Practical, the Victor of Hellanus, the Saviour of Vrax, and Auditore Imperiata Hectorex. Is he Mother of Dragons as well? Yeah, just about, right? The Unburnt? <laughs> yeah. Breaker of Chains? No, he'd be he'd be putting chains on, right? Um, yeah, so that's so that's his his full title and honorific. Um, so Hector Rex uh, is actually a Lord Inquisitor. So he's the Lord Inquisitor of the Conclave of Scarus. Um, so what that actually means is that the Scarus subsector, he is like the top of the food chain for the Inquisition. Um. He has full and total control over um, all inquisitorial matters, not just his own orders matters, mm. um, which, which is kind of quite impressive, um, although not out of the ordinary for um, the Automolais um, by any means. Um, obviously, the really interesting uh, honorific in there, and we've already talked about it a bit, is the Auditae uh, Imperator, um, which means he's been in the Golden Throne Room and he's communed with the Emperor. Yes. Um, don't think that makes him a hidden master um, <laughs> or anything like that um, but it just happens to be something that's um, yeah a, a very great honour um, that he's had throughout his career so um, his history so he was originally um, selected to be part of the Adaptus Astra Telepathica um, so he was going to be um, a message service uh, because he was incredibly um, potent as a psyker and he had any showed talents from a young age. 
Um, so instead of taking him on a black ship and feeding him to the Emperor, um, they decided they could use him. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they trained him, basically they realized that he was wasted on that. Um, and they basically removed him from that. Um, and the Inquisition basically went, yeah, look, you're a pretty good candidate. Um, and interestingly, the um, the first thing that they did was they put him through a whole range of genetic enhancements. Um, once again, I was talking about this earlier, that a lot of these um, Malayus Inquisitors are gene-enhanced um, to be able to fight demons. Um, but this happened to him quite early on, and I actually talk about um, he he's, he's, a, he's still a human, he's still a mortal human, um, but he's eight foot tall. And he has the bulk and the size of a space marine, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, so after that, um, after all the gene enhancement was done and his training was done, he was put into the service of Inquisitor Thor Malkin um, and became one of his acolytes. Basically, he um, moved very quickly through the ranks of the Inquisition from there. Um, of the Auto Malleus. Um, he was inducted into the truth about demons. So he was told about the warp and taught how to deal with it, how to deal with the demon within and the demon without. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually uh, becoming the Proctor General of the Scarus Conclave in the Segmentum Obscurus. Um, and one of the one of the things is it says that he possesses unlimited powers with which to deal with chaotic threats within the sector. Um, so he's, he's he would be considered to be most probably the most powerful person within the sector. Um, on multiple occasions, he's led entire armies. He's called upon Grey Knight strike forces and led them in you know against all sorts of threats. Mm-hmm. Um, he's considered to be a hardline Puritan, um, when it comes to people dealing with demons, although obviously yeah. he's a psyche himself, so he's not a Puritan in the same way as the Order Hereticus guys are Puritans. Um, he's done his fair share of renegade and radical tracking. Um, so he tracked down and captured the renegade Inquisitor Galasek, um, not entirely sure who that is, and there doesn't seem to be any more background on it. It's just one of his um, one of his notable victories, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, and it actually says that he has like entire parts of his retinue are still hunting Galasex, um agents across the galaxy, trying to sort of eradicate any any notion that this Inquisitor ever existed. Um, so one of his titles is he was the victor of Hellanius. Um. So on Hellanius, he commanded a strike force of Grey Knights and went hand-to-hand with a greater demon of corn and banished it back to the warp. Um, in recognition of doing that, the Grey Knights actually gifted him with a nemesis force weapon, uh, which is a force sword called Aras. Um, and apparently Aras dates back to the Horus Heresy and was personally blessed by the Emperor's own hand. Um, and has been um, hefted at different times by Auto Malaeus Inquisitors and Grey Knights. And currently that's the weapon that Hector Rex uses, which is kind of cool. Anybody that has named weaponry is uh, is okay in my books. Um, it basically, 
uh, says that because of his um, his stature as you know the Inquisitor or the Scara Sector, um, his retinue is is sort of like countless in number. Um, he has all sorts of agents working for him. Um, he also has access to um, Imperial assassins um, to do his work, which is quite interesting um, because a lot of the time the Officia Assassinorum is kind of the shadow behind the shadow for the Inquisition. Yeah. Um, so there's there's places where he's used that before. Um, and then probably his most notable involvement um, in the Imperium would be the Siege of Vrax, which is where he sort of comes from in the, um, in the canon. And as we are talking about before, he, towards the end, takes over complete control of the theatre, um, brings in a whole lot of Grey Knights under Brother Captain Stern uh, and heads down to Vrax to um, beat up um, the Lord of all Bloodthirsters, Angrath the Unbound, uh, who, if you've never never seen him, he's the giant bloodthirster from Forge World. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, um, Hector, and, uh, H- Hector and Stern and the rest of the Grey Knights uh, get stuck in with Angrath. Um, and the bloodthirsters that he's brought with him. And basically it ends with um, Aras, his sword buried in Angrath's chest and Angrath getting um, obliterated by uh, Hector's psychic might, um, which is quite impressive. And this is what I was talking about with, you know, these these force weapons are really just channels or lodestones for psychic power. Mm. Um, so Angrath is banished from Vrax at that time. Um, and with it, the, the the chaos incursion at Vrax basically falls to pieces. That's the 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 climax at the end of everything. Um, so soon after he places Vrax under Automaeus quarantine, uh, he declares the planet uh, Perdita, um, and basically says nobody can go near there. Um, they then conduct their after action review into it. Um, and they decide that the entire system should be interdicted at that point. Um, and the Inquisition places basically Imperial Navy patrols at the border to the system um, and automated sentry buoys and things like that. So he basically just blocks off an entire system, um, even though it's an incredibly important one to the Imperium. So, yeah, that's um, that's really cool. Um, the other thing is he's, um, obviously, if, if you've seen the models, there's a model from Forge World, which is really, really tasty. He looks like sort of a giant Space Marine and Terminator armor with a, a storm shield and a, and a big sword. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's actually wearing Artificer armor. He's not wearing Terminator armor um, there, which is kind of cool. But it's one of the most sort of Baroque sets of armor I think I've ever seen come out of Games Workshop. Um and I actually found uh, found my copy of that model um, nice. the other day. Uh, so I'm actually planning on trying to get that painted up in, in the next few days. Um, he's also got some really cool um, retinue models that come with him from Forge World. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, lights are great. Yeah, he's got a, um, a telepath, which I think is probably one of the most imperial models I have ever seen. Like, it, it's just straight out of, like, a Blanche drawing. Yep. Um, just gorgeous, gorgeous model. Um, and he's actually not too bad on the tabletop as well, uh, which is interesting. He's, um, I think he's like 130 points or something. Um, can cast two psychic powers, but he can deny three per turn. Uh, 
Um, and that's before the fact that he basically beats the crap out of anything um, with his sword, um, especially if it's a demon. Um, he, he basically just does a whole bunch of damage just off hits, I think, um, yeah, or something right. like that. It's kind of like, you know, if he hits a demon, he does a mortal wound and then can do more wounds as well. Um, the only downfall to him is his toughness three, um, which is the, the idea that he's not quite a space marine, um, but he is genetically enhanced. But he's got a three plus invulnerable and two plus armor save and all that sort of stuff, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, so that's um, Inquisitor Lord Hector Rex. Um, and the, the one thing, and I've got to go back and check my Vrax book for this, um, but the Scar Sector is actually where a lot of the Eisenhorn story takes it place. sure is. The, so the Helican subsector of the Scar Sector. Um, yeah, yes. and, and, I'm, and, and I'm sort of interested to find out, although I have a feeling there's actually quite a few hundred years difference. But I would say that, because um, obviously Eisenhorn takes place a long time before a lot of 40k takes place. Yeah. Because obviously um, Gideon Ravener, who's, you know, his student, eventually writes The Spheres of Longing, which is considered like his seminal works. And then we know from reading Gaunt's Ghosts that Gaunt is given a copy or has a copy of it. And they talk about it as being quite an old text by that time. Um, So I would have a feeling that, you know, it's possible that Eisenhorn and everything that happens there predates Rex by hundreds of years. So Um, the Siege of Rex is 600 years, give or take, after um, Eisenhorn is elevated to Inquisitor. Oh, the, yeah, no, right. It's it, it's noted here. Siege, Siege of Rex is eight thirty, M forty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Eisenhorn, the the Necrochuk affair begins in two forty M forty one. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah, yeah six hundred yeah. years give or take. Yeah, and then I think there's probably there's probably even a, a couple of hundred years between the Sabbat World Crusades and then this, and then the Siege of Rex in that case. Uh, probably. So I would imagine Sabbath World's Crusade. <laughs> Let's have a look. Talk, talk, talk about Alex Canem Hole. Yeah, um, about deep, a deep dive. We're now uh, comparing dates. Interestingly, only in theory, about twenty years between the end of the Sabbath World's Crusade and the start of the Siege of Rax. Oh, okay, right. And the Sabbath World Crusade goes for what eighty years? Starts in seven fifty-five. So, and at the moment. Yeah, ends in the 70s. Like oh, okay. Is that short? Yeah. And so then Vrax starts then in 813. In, in 830, yeah. So there's 30-odd years, give or take. Yeah. Although 780s is an estimate at the moment, given that we don't actually have a finished date for... Yep. Um, the, so so what we know about the Sabbath World's Crusade so far runs up to the 780s. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and then I guess the other... Um, the flip side to all of this, obviously, is that we now know that somebody hasn't been winding up the clocks in the Imperium and everything's fucked when it comes to time. Well, uh, exactly. <laughs> in theory, that's the Autochronus' job. Oh, well, yes. I think that's an episode, uh, you know, when they're not wiping themselves right? out. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, my favourite part is that they're in a constant argument with Gulliman about what time it is. Yeah. Because Gulliman's like, no, that's not the year. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Of course it's the year. That's what we say the year is. And we're the ones who set the time. He's like, come on, guys. It's not the year. <laughs> that, that's the, yeah, that's not what's happening here. Can you guys just, like, piss off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting, guys. I've just gone down the rabbit hole looking at um, Brother Captain Stern of the Grey Knights, who was um, with um, Rex on Vrax. Yep. Um, and yeah, his. Um, so, like, his career as a Brother Captain sort of starts sometime around Vrax, it seems. Yeah. But then right. it goes well beyond that um, yep. because he keeps, as I said, like, you know, a lot of these guys are just hanging out waiting for you know, demons to reappear a hundred years later. And it happens quite a few times with him. Um, yeah. And obviously to become a brother captain, you know, he would have been a gray knight for, you know, quite a few hundred years beforehand, most probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, uh, yeah. And it's so sort of the offshoot when you start dealing with inquisitors and things like that, like the ability to obviously, you know, all the best um, rejuvenance and, and enhancements and, and those sort of things like, you know, Eisenhorn lives for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. um, let alone, you know, like more powerful psychers than, you know, what he is that have access to, you know, full genetic enhancements. So you'd have to imagine some of these guys have been kicking around for significant lengths of time. Quite a while, you would imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah. So look, we, we did have a, a required reading section here and Doug just wrote one word underneath that said Eisenhorn in bold, which I completely agree with. But I, I almost feel like we've covered that. Um, <laughs> it's it's definitely worth a read. Um, I'm just throwing up some other ones. Yep. Uh, so obviously Eisenhorn, uh, originally a trilogy, now being expanded on. Um, I actually class the Ravenna books as being Eisenhorn books as well. Yeah, me too. Because fucking Eisenhorn greater than Ravenna. God, that Three. that used uh, to start that used to start fights on forums. Did uh, was who who was the who was the greater Inquisitor? Was it Eisenhorn or Ravenna? Um, um, yes, but uh, you can read all about that and let us know. Uh, get at us with your favorite Inquisitor. But some other ones are if you're in a mood for some weird shit. Uh, can I recommend <laughs> the Inquisition War by Ian Watson? Yep. Um, so this is so this is I think it it was the first forty k novel written. Uh, wasn't that Space Brain? No, I, I think because Inquisition War was a trilogy. Uh, but also, if you're not in the mood for weird shit, can I recommend the Herusian Wars, which yeah. are the new Inquisitor Covenant books? Yep. So the first novel in the Inquisition Wars, which is just called Draco, because uh, Jacques yeah. Draco is the, the Malayas Inquisitor in it, was originally published in 1990 as Inquisitor and is the earliest Warhammer 40k novel published. Yep, you're right. Yep, 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 yep. Um, and then Space Marine was 93, and then Harlequin yes. in 94, and Chaos Child in 95. Yeah, cool. Yep. Um, so, yeah, no, uh, the Inquisition War is now not considered to be canon. Um, <laughs> For which good is, reason. 
which which is quite interesting. I actually love it. I actually think it's it's one of the best high science fiction trilogies I've ever read in my life. It it has like you know how we were talking about June at the beginning in um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it like if if you want psychedelic insanity, the Inquisition Wars has everything, including naked space marines. Um, yep. And I know there are going to be people that are going to read that book just because they want to know all about the naked space marines. <laughs> well, plus sex with a gene stealer hybrid, right? Like, yeah, yes, yeah. It's it's a thing. It's, <laughs> it's a whole thing. Um, uh, if you're if you're listening to the 40k badcast, um, they have a a, a long running seg- segment called Fact or Fan Fiction. Uh, and occasionally, instead of oh, yeah, novel they'll, fantasy, they'll read <laughs> Ian Watson. Yeah, because yeah. it's just as out there as some of the fanfic. Um, but, you know, it was a start. It, it Like, a lot of the... I guess a lot of the, like, foundational Inquisition work was done in Inquisitor, right? Like, those first sort of steps into what is the Inquisition, what what's yep. the remit particularly of the Automalleus, um, would have started there. So if you want, like, a bit of a primer... Or the Ur Inquisitor book, <laughs> then it's worth a read. Um, it's since been republished, and I think the squat character is now a tech priest. So if you get the two thousand two version, it's a, yeah, it's a tech priest, not a squat. Oh, that sucks. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that that's obviously the work of the um, the auto that that sort of hangs out behind the auto malleus and just rewrites all the records to make to make them make sense. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's also um, other great moments from the Inquisition War include him barging into the Emperor's throne room. Yes, yeah, the conversation with the Emperor is one of my favorites. Yeah, the Inquisition War, <laughs> and it's really funny if you've read um, Master of Mankind. To compare and contrast the, the conversations is is just incredible. Um, yes, no, but I look, I, I I do, I absolutely love that that trilogy um i've actually got it here somewhere i should really reread it um but it is a it is a difficult read though um yes because there is a there are entire parts of it that are just like what the fuck is going on and then you find out that it's this random elder person having some sort of like spirit quest thing but there was no context to it you're just dropped in the middle of it and you're like 30 pages of what the fuck and if you make it through it, you find out it was somebody on a craft world having a dream. Uh, <laughs> um, and then the last one you've got here is the Herugian Wars, which I think is that Inquisitor Covenant? Yes, that's the new Covenant books. Uh, which is, I want to read those. I started on the first one. I, I didn't quite, it sort of, it, I started it at a time when I was super busy, so I didn't quite get into it as much as I would like. But the interesting thing about it is that it's very much not from the Inquisitor's perspective. So you spend oh, almost, okay. almost no, I guess partially to avoid being a new Eisenhorn, but you spend almost no time in Inquisitor Covenant's head. You spend all the time with his retinue, like Joseph, the, the preacher, and the other guys. Oh, cool. Um, so it's a lot more about how other people see the Inquisition rather than how Inquisitors see the rest of the world. Yeah. No, I'm gonna the rest of the galaxy, that. I should say. Yeah. Um, and there's some fun plot twists in there that are, are worth a, a thing, but I won't spoil them for you. I'll leave them for you yeah. to discover on your own. 
Um, and then look, the the only other thing I'd probably add in there with required reading quickly is, you know, almost any book that has anything to do with the Imperium in it will have something in there about Inquisitors. Yes. And a lot of the time it's the Automalleus. Um yeah, there, there is such a wealth of knowledge and stories and all sorts of things. Um, obviously, there was an entire game system at one point from Specialist Games, which was just called Inquisitor. Um, mm-hmm. And like that's where these annuals are from that I've got sitting here on the floor next to me. Um, I've got a rule book for it somewhere, I think, still. And it was just <laughs> like, oh, just so much, so much background. You've got, you know, multiple RPG systems that were done by you know, Games Workshop and Fantasy Flight that cover off the Inquisition. Um, yeah, it, there's just so much stuff out there. and It's so deep and, you know, rich. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, it, it, it's hard not to absolutely fall in love with the Inquisition, I think. Yes. Uh, certainly even Gaunt's Ghosts has quite a few Inquisitors sitting in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they sort of pop up. Uh, a lot of the, like, even the computer games, like in Space Marine and stuff, you, yeah. get, you get Inquisitors appearing, so... Yeah. Um, Inquisitor, uh, what's his name? The guy in the first Dawn of War. Yeah, yeah, Dawn of War. Um, uh, I wouldn't have a clue what the guy's name is, yeah. It's all right. But he, he is Automalleus, though, and he's the reason Gabriel Angelos has a hammer. Yeah. Has a demon hammer, in fact. Not a demon hammer, a um, force hammer, the, the anti-demon hammer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, look, I, I think, you know, just, and, you know, as we've shown tonight, like a lot of the, a lot of the background, a lot of the, the notes for tonight, you know, drew from all sorts of, you know, online sources that collate stuff. So if you're looking mm-hmm. for a bit more, um, on the Inquisition, you know, just punch it into Google and Lexicanium comes up, um, with, you know, pages and pages and pages. Um, and there's so many notable Inquisitors and, and Inquisitor Lords and retinue members, that you know, there's hours that you can just spend trawling through this stuff, um, and obviously it, it, it's it's so vibrant that I think it's hard not to want to do something in the hobby and on the tabletop with it once you've read it. Yes, correct. So, um, but that will bring us into our hobby hack. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about building inquisitors with a tabletop. Let's do it. Great. See you on the other side. And we're back with our hobby hacks, thinking about how we build Inquisitors on the table. Uh, Andrew, this is probably one where you have more experience than I do. Um, so why don't you take us through some Inquisitors that you've built, and I'll just sort of add stuff in as we go. Yeah, cool. Um, so as I've said a few times already, this episode and other episodes, um, I spent a lot of time in 3rd and 4th edition just playing Inquisitorial armies. Um, so I had Grey Knight armies, I had um, 
renegade Inquisitor armies that were full of demon hosts and Imperial Guardsmen. Um, I had, you know, Inquisitors from every auto. Um, but the ones I loved the most were the, the Malaeus Inquisitors, because I think on the tabletop, they're kind of like, they're kind of what you expect on the tabletop, if that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. They're the guys that wear the big hulking suits of power armor and Terminator armor. Um, they're warriors, you know, first and foremost. Like they want to go and hit stuff in the face with a hammer. Um, so I'll, I'll run run you through a few that I, I've sort of actually built. Um, so my favorite one and the one I used the most, which was uh, one of my Puritan Demon Hunter guys, um, was actually an old... Um, not a war machine model jesus can't remember what it was but it was a it was Malifo? a third what was that malifo no 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 well what well, predated malifo it might have been a reaper model actually uh, yeah, from reaper. one of the reaper lines and he was this guy in this big big suit of what was basically banded power armor um but what i loved about him was he had this big cloak on him and then he had this giant halo that went up from his um his power pack on his backpack um with these giant wings on it um that sort of sat around his head um so i took him and then did you know a basic hand swap gave him a giant demon hammer and gave him a um a storm shield um so that mm-hmm. was one guy that i had so that was inquisitor tannhauser um and he was incredibly successful um, i don't think he won an entire game in two editions Um, but we don't hold that against him uh i then created uh, another malaeus inquisitor using the old uh, space marine terminator sergeant that was a metal terminator sergeant he had a storm bolter in one hand that he was aiming and firing and he had a power sword held down by his side um and he was one of the first like dynamic looking terminators um oh he also had a big back banner Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. what I did was I, I I lopped the arms off him, and mind you, this was a metal miniature. Um, so I like hacksawed through the arms. Um, he then got a pair of lightning claws um, because lightning claws just look cool. So he got a pair of lightning claws. Uh, I green stuffed a hood over his head because one of the big things with uh, Malaeus Inquisitors is they have this um, thing about their identities. They need to be hidden agents. So a lot of them affect, you know, big hoods and cows um, or even, you know, like electronic and psychic masking. So they don't know who they are. Like even their colleagues don't know who they are and what they look like Um, for protection, I guess. Uh, So he got a big hood over his head. Um, And then the other really cool thing was this was just after the plastic um multi-part space marine command squad came out and there was like the giant mm-hmm. banner bearer guy yep so i got the giant banner put it on this guy's like extended this guy's back banner put it on his back banner and then um got a whole bunch of inquisition uh decals out of the sisters of battle boxes and gave him like a giant inquisitorial like eye nice on this banner um so he was just like an absolute monster. Um, he was slightly more effective than Tannhauser because I used to run him in the, um, I used to run him in my Grey Knights army. Mm, um, so he was he was the Inquisitor that used to go in there, um, and he was an absolute blender. 
because that was back in the days when it was basically you just didn't get an armor save against the lightning claws because they were power weapons. Um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, I then had a couple of radical inquisitors. Um, so my favorite one was uh, Games Day in like 2001. They did an Archaeon on foot model. Yes. Actually, you know what? might have been like 2003 or so. Anyway, so they did this gigantic Archaeon on foot. Um, for some reason, they didn't sell out of them. <laughs> so they let people buy. So like you bought your Games Day ticket and you got this model, right? Um, what they What they did was, you know, not everybody got the model or something. So they just started selling them at the end of the day. So I picked up a whole bunch of them. Um, and I ended up turning one into um, like left, like Archaeon sword um, and yep. his cloak. Um, and then green stuffed a bunch of stuff onto the armor um, and did a head swap. So it was like a big chunky inquisitor with a demon sword. Um, so he was a radical and he used to have, um, I, I used to max out my elite slots with demon hosts, which I think was like nine demon hosts <laughs> or something. Um, but they were frigging terrible. They used to all have random powers that you rolled at the beginning of the turn. So you just had this thing and it was like, one of them was like randomly teleports to another part of the board. Um, you know, it just sets off a giant AOE explosion and just hits everything around them. Um, buffs up for combat terrifies everybody and it's just like you have no control over it <laughs> and i used to have nine of them in the army so generally what would happen is i'd start rolling at the beginning of the turn and you'd end up with like one demon prince would like uh one demon host would like teleport across the board um another one would just blow up in my own lines <laughs> but occasionally if you, if you got some half decent roles you know like that that go through like a you know a tactical squad or a, a unit of terminators pretty quickly um but it just it was just so rare that that ever happened <laughs> yep um and then more and then more recently um i've sort of, sort of been playing around a little bit um with some of the new gene steel occult kits yeah, um, nice. it's one because one thing I never, never, ever did um, back in the day was try and come up with an Inquisitor that wasn't wearing like power armor or Terminator armor. Because yeah. obviously, like, multi-part Marines were like the biggest thing for so long. There wasn't really anything else around that you could do without chopping up like metal stuff. Um, so yeah, playing around with like the Acolyte kits, obviously, you know, lopping off the extra arms. Um, I'm trying to think who's the guy that's got the needle pistol. And the cloak. What's that gene still? Uh, there's the, the Primus. Yeah, the Primus. So he, yep. there's, there's a Primus that's got like this really cool, like he's got a hood and a cloak. Yes. And he's got like a needle pistol. And I think he's, I want to say he's got like a power sword with him or something like that. Uh, a bone uh, sword, but yeah. A bone sword, yeah. And and one of the, and I've seen this time and again, and I think it makes a great Inquisitor. Mm -hmm. um, you do a head swap on it. You lop off. I think he's got an extra arm, does he? He does. He's got a rending claw as well. So you ditch the yeah. claw. Oh, and actually, sorry. Yeah, and then swap the weapons around a bit and call it a day. Yeah, and, and you basically have like a yeah a ready-to-go Inquisitor. Um, but one of the things I did to research was I spent some... Sorry, spent some time on Pinterest. Um, and yes. by the way, if you do not use Pinterest for your hobby, like, just go and use it. It's amazing. Um, and what I did was I went through and there's a... a a sort of a fan-made game system called Inquisitor 28, which is yes. the Inquisitor game that was 54 mil played at 28 mil scale. 
And there's some of the most incredible hobbyists that play this game. And I was just going through pulling down a whole bunch of their um, Inquisitor models and looking at how they do things. Because obviously, you know, there's like, it's so easy to use space brain parts for, you know, Inquisitors. But one of the things that I keep seeing, which I really want to try, is a lot of the Stormcast Eternal models. Yeah, there's some great conversions. Make some fans, and they have so many hammers. Yep. Like, they're, they're just perfect for Malaeus Inquisitors. Yeah, and, and it's much more Baroque armor as well, which is yes. really cool. Um, just having a look at what some of the other ones are that I've got here. Um... So, so I was going to say, when you're thinking about making your Inquisitor, I suspect a a good starting point is figuring out if you want them to be radical or Puritan, because that will largely influence how you then move forwards, right? Because if you're thinking um, Puritan, then you can think about things like Stormcast and the Space Marine boxes and stuff like that, Um, even the, the Gene Steeler cult stuff, because it's default Imperial shit. Um, whereas if you're thinking more radical, then you can start there, but you can also start bringing in stuff like some of the chaos bits and pieces, um, or even potentially some of the more out there stuff, like the, um, uh, you know, even some of the death stuff, for example, from Age of Sigma, you could do like a, a necromancer inquisitor. Uh, yeah. Someone who's sucking uh, out people's souls and then throwing them at demons. <laughs> That's actually really cool. Ooh, I like that idea. idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> um, yeah, hundred percent. I, I think the the biggest thing with Inquisitors and where I always started was um, I'd just have an idea like you just had. Yes, and I'd be like, "Oh, this is this is awesome," and it would be, you know, it, it could be something like it could be a name or it could be. Um, a piece of war gear that seems like a cool piece of war gear. And then it's like, you know, like, um, a giant double handed, um, broadsword force weapon. And then it's like, who wields this? What are they like as a, as a character? Um, and then you give life to it. And, and honestly, I don't think the modeling aspect comes into it really until the, the end, because that's really like the physical manifestation of, everything else to do with the character and i think with inquisitors and because i know what we're like as hobbyists in this game um we really want to make super rich characters and inquisitors are amazing bases for it so it's like you know start with your narrative find one one tiny bit of narrative as i said like even a name and there's actually i found a ton of inquisition name generators yep uh, which were kind of cool um or a piece of war gear or you know even like some like, like some sort of like victory or cool story and then add the characters like backwards into it if that makes sense yeah and that'll spit you out the sort of um the sort of model you're gonna have and i think the really cool thing is there's so many more plastic parts at the moment there's so many more base models you can use mm-hmm um than there ever used to be and obviously they're not you know they're not metals anymore there's tons of third party things like as i said you know rtlw has like basically an entire inquisitor range um now yes a lot of those come out of like um eisenhorn and ravenna but but you know parts good bases anyway right yeah pilots and most of them have separate heads to bodies and separate arms so you can 
start with like a similar sort of because one of the best things about Eisenhorn is that most of the tropes are represented. So you've got like the the cocky pilot, you've got the straight up and down sort of ex cop, um, you know, you've got the the witch and the anti witch, you know, all that sort of stuff, or the psycho and the anti psycho, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, you've even got the tech boy in Magos Bure. Um, so, you know, you can even just start from the models that ITLW has and then head swap or weapon swap or whatever and call it a day. Yeah. And, and I think the thing with Inquisition is it's like, there's, there's nothing that's too crazy for them. Correct. So it's like, you know, you can, um, you know, there'll be Mechanicus parts that you can use. Um, you can use uh, one thing that I see all the time, and this is more a retinue thing, although you could totally do an Inquisitor like this, is like um, a lot of Dark Elder Witch parts mm-hmm, for sure. like Death Cold Assassins um, that you could make like a super lethal, um, you know, Inquisitor. Uh, like, you know, it, that'd be a good way to make like, a, like say, a female Inquisitor because we're still yep. lacking in sort of the female model department from Games Workshop to some extent. Yeah, although, you know, although like those female Stormcast now would yeah, make awesome okay. female Inquisitors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, other other places where I think you get some really cool parts from are obviously like uh, the Imperial Guard range yeah, because cool. they're humans, mm-hmm. right? Sci-fi humans. Um, but even looking into things like um, Necromunda. Yeah. And that sort of thing, because anywhere you can get humans um, and different types of humans, you can grab those bits and bash and kit bash them around. Like I know, um, like uh, those new enforcers, the stuff you could make out of them pretty easy, easily. You know, some carapace armored retinue guys or visitors themselves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, Van Sar gangers, they have yeah. like a pretty cool like bodysuit um, style to them that would work really well. Um, for a lot of inquisitorial retinues and inquisitors, yep. um, even the um, uh, not the who, who are the who are the guys that are like the crazy zealot dudes in Necromunda House Cordor? Yeah, yeah, those guys. Um, like yep. they're obviously like super religious fanatics that work well in like a Puritan inquisitorial retinue. Correct, they would be excellent for that. Um, the other thing I would recommend is Warcry. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I haven't even thought about that. I've seen some some excellent. I mean, you know, they're the they're the obvious choice, but the Corvus Cabal. Uh, I've seen some excellent conversions where they've got like long rifles and stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah, some good sort of sniper bird bros. Um, but even stuff like the, um, you know, the iron. Well, maybe not so much the iron golems. They're quite chaosy. But um, cipher lords, for example, you could make some stuff out of, depending on um, what you're doing with them. Yeah, that that would work. I, I I think um you know what you like iron golems would probably work if you had like um mechanicus bits to hang off. Well, yeah, you, they they could make pretty cool like crusaders and stuff. Oh yeah, I was gonna say um, servitors. That sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, servitors uh, or crusaders sort of thing would work really yeah. nicely with them. And actually, that's True. that's some, that's something else because we've sort of flipped into like talking about retinues as well, and that's such a massive part of inquisitive like inquisitors yeah. is there identity is not just them it's also their their retinues and the people that they're around that are part of their story um so it's something to consider when you're building your inquisitor is what what are the sort of people that he sort of hangs out with and as you said you can go down the 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 the, the sort of stereotype trope route or you can kind of um 
try and come up with you know some interesting pairings like you could have some um maybe some really low tech guys um like maybe yeah. some like feral world warrior crusaders or something like that and then you could have like some super teched up mechanicus adepts or um you know data data smith guys um that he works with but realistically like the world is your oyster when it comes to making inquisitors mm-hmm. um and as i said like just punch it in the pinterest and look at other people's ideas if you don't know where to start um and if anything it'll be like information overload yeah for sure um so yeah and then obviously um you know like inquisitors they they don't really have um as far as the painting goes they don't have set colors or anything like that like obviously uh black and red are big big um, inquisitorial colors but you can paint them any color really and um yeah and they'll look fantastic and then you can swap them in and don't forget on the tabletop obviously you can sort them into basically any army you uh you want as long as it's imperial Pretty much. Yeah. So, look, I think that'll probably do us for hobby hacks and probably do us for this episode. Yes. So, um, if you're looking for us, you can find the Loaded Dice podcast uh, across Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to uh, get into our emails, uh, theloaderdicecast at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. But uh, feel free to DM us on Instagram and Facebook. Nice. Uh, So until next time, keep your powder dry and your dice loaded.